Welcome to a brand new episode of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle, brought to you by Boston Market's all-new Nashville Hot Chicken Sandwich. The chicken sandwich wars are over. Enter the Nashville Hot Crispy Chicken Sandwich from Boston Market. The rotisserie everything experts and reigning chicken royalty for more than 30 years are heating things up this winter and putting competitors to shame with its first ever crispy chicken sandwich. Available for a limited time, guests can fire up their taste buds with the Oh Yeah, You're Gonna Sweat Nashville Hot Crispy Chicken Sandwich, plus two additional Nashville Hot menu offerings, including a spicy new take on its famous rotisserie chicken. Available at Boston Market restaurants for a limited time. In addition to being served in restaurant or via drive-thru where available, all menu items from Boston Market can be ordered for takeout, delivery, and contactless curbside pickup by visiting bostonmarket.com or placing an order via the Boston Market app. For additional information on Boston Market, its newest menu offerings, brand news, or to find your nearest location, please visit bostonmarket.com and follow at Boston Market on social media. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 33 of Bro Babble's Endless Hustle. I am your host, Matt Cohan, and I am joined by the electric Mr. Arthur Cade. Just a note to everyone who's currently buried in three feet of snow in the Northeast and sleeting rain, it does get better. It will start to get darker later, and there is light at the end of the tunnel. For all of you going through those winter doldrums, we're here to make your life a little easier until then because we have a beautiful little show today, don't we, Arthur? We do. We have two awesome guests, Matt, both very accomplished gentlemen. One is five-time UFC welterweight champion Tyron Woodley. Talk to us as he's preparing for UFC 260. And the other guy is someone you're a big fan of, former Patriot, now Detroit Lions linebacker, Jamie Collins. Both of these guys, Matt, I think we can agree, were just so insanely open about talking to us about everything, their careers, their mistakes, some of the, the stigmas associated with their careers, both good and bad. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, two totally different temperaments, two totally different paces, but each of them have had the highest of highs in their careers, and they have had some uh, some difficult moments. And just to see them now that they're removed from that, kind of looking back on where their career was and where it is and where their future lies, uh, it was pretty enlightening stuff. Yeah, our first guest is Tyron Woodley. He's a UFC legend. He began his professional career in the MMA arena in 2009, became the UFC welterweight champion in 2016 by defeating Robbie Lawler. It's hard to explain until you listen to this interview how open Tyron was with the pitfalls of fame. And that's what was incredible to me. I mean, the guy is incredibly well-rounded in terms of he has a successful podcast. He's hosted a show for TMZ. He's a stuntman, but... What really struck me and what I think you guys are going to get a kick from is Tyron really talked about the stigma of what it's like for a UFC fighter when you're not Conor McGregor and how much the UFC gets behind you when you're a marketing machine versus really brilliant at your craft. And also when you become famous, what is it like when you're trying to keep up with the Joneses? 
he got into a lot of detail about that, how he blew through millions of dollars, was maxing out his ATM card. I mean, just crazy stuff, Matt. Yeah, I was thinking about what you said about the UFC putting the machine behind them. And I kind of landed on this. In other two-player sports like tennis, you enter the big tournaments, you win, you advance, and the world rankings are directly correlated to on-court success. In MMA, UFC in particular, success in the sport is just kind of a portion of that pie. If you're someone who's not stunting on Instagram or drumming up fanfare, your fight pool is probably going to be smaller and you may not get the matches to showcase what your in-ring performance warrants. That's why there's always there's talk about, yeah, you're undefeated, but you haven't fought anyone. You wouldn't dare say that Roger Federer hasn't faced anyone. So this ambiguity is something that I think Tyron Woodley has railed against in the past. And just days ago, he said that the UFC is trying to force Kamara Usman into a star. But if this was any other sport, Usman would already have been a household name at 12-0 and with three straight title defenses. In combat sports, you need that manufactured hype to really break into the mainstream. And I think that's why Woodley has made an effort in recent years to really become more of a cultural figure with his rapping, his acting, and then going on Rogan after he ripped his UFC commenting, which was also enlightening to hear his stance on Rogan's capacity with the UFC in this interview. But it's very apparent in talking to him, you know, after spending the, a decade in the sport, you know, like you said, welterweight champion, he still doesn't feel like his resume is appreciated. And that may be very bad news for Vincent Luque on March 27th. Yeah, I mean, he made it clear to us, Matt, that his last several fights was not the best of Tyron Woodley, that he hadn't been preparing or as focused as he needed to be. I mean, he even talked to us about sleeping on his mom's couch while he was winning championship fights. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. But I think we both walked away from this conversation feeling that he believes that he's back in the prime or at least a new prime of his career and that he's going to be bringing his A game moving forward. So it's going to be fascinating to see what happens at UFC 260. Honestly, after talking to him, I'm actually really cheering for him. He seems like a great guy and just a guy who kind of got lost on the path of success like a lot of others do, figured it out, and is now trying to put the pieces back together to be successful again. So without further ado, here is five-time UFC welterweight champion Tyron Woodley. All right, all right, all right. We are thrilled to have on The Endless Hustle today former UFC welterweight champion Tyron Woodley. He also happens to have probably one of the best podcast names, I think, going right now, Morning Wood with D's Nuts. Tyron, I just got to <laughs> give you your roses now yep. because I think you won that that podcasting game. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. A lot of people um, don't recognize I am a podcaster. I haven't done it in a while. Uh, we took me and my co-host, Dean Thomas, which is also my head coach, we took a small hiatus just because we wanted to prepare it to actually stream on one of the different platforms. So we just kind of trying to, you know, razzle-dazzle a little bit and, you know, get our ducks in a row. Because as you guys know, the scheduling guests is the most pain in the ass thing about the podcast. And being in different cities, different time zones, technical difficulties, fucked up Wi-Fi and all this type of stuff really just makes it a pain in the ass to do a podcast. So I'm glad I was able to get on with you guys and um, chop it up a little bit. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll glad me and Arthur will gladly come on the podcast. Just give us the date and time. Literally. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I, I love how Matt just self-invited us onto his podcast. You got to love hey, it. A closed mouth don't get fed. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. 
All right, let's kind of get right into it here. You're making your return in the octagon against Vincent Luque on March 27th. He's won nine. They announced it already? I believe. I mean, yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I know. Tyron's like, this sounds great. <laughs> he won nine of his last 10. Betting odds have you as the underdog. Is that fuel to your fire, or are you just not even paying attention to the rubbish? Yeah, I don't, I don't really care about the betting underdogs because at the end of the day, I'm the ultimate underdog. I've been an underdog so many times again. And just judging on, you know, my last three performances, my last three fights, you know, it would make sense. He's from the same camp of two of the three last losses I had. So, you know, I would I would assume that people say, okay, the camp understand him, figured him out, and they got the, you know, the kryptonite to defeat him. So um, I really don't care about that stuff. But at the end of the day, um, I'm just going out there to win. Only game that's played on paper is paper uh, football, flicking field goals through um, through your hands. And I'm just going to go out there and have fun and do my thing. When did you decide you wanted to do MMA? You were obviously a wrestler growing up, but when did you realize, all right, I can transition and become part of this larger art that has become a behemoth? Everything I did, I try to be the best in, right? So whether it's wrestling or mixed martial arts, and I think when you chasing greatness for so many years, you don't really – take time to enjoy the moments. You don't take time to really see what you're doing. You're too busy trying to outdo yourself and, you know, um, beat your personal best or do things that you don't even think you can do yourself. So I feel like it's good to look back because obviously in a lot of my fights, you don't see a lot of, you don't see a lot of my background, you know, see where I actually came from reflecting in fights. And, um, you know, I just want to put it together and wherever, wherever I see it fit, if it's time to, go for a shot here, if it's time to throw a head kick, if it's time to be defensive, if it's time to, you know what I mean, scramble. I want to be able to just react because all the techniques and tools and the things that go into it, I have. I just need to put them together consistently, you know, um, throughout my fights. You've been at this for over a decade. You mentioned, you know, it's hard to kind of stop and smell the roses. Have you gotten better at that as your career? You're, you're going to be 39 in April. Have you kind of gotten better at being like looking around and being like, wow, you know, I live a pretty good life and I've accomplished a lot? I wouldn't say that because I always, always got a couple of homies that motivate me. Um, I was hanging out with my, one of my homies in L.A. and, you know, just his house was just so peaceful and he had a crazy view and everything was just serene and, you know what I mean? He don't ever have to leave home. Now, my house in St. Louis is getting to the point where I don't have to leave home very much. I got everything I kind of need within my house, but it just made me think bigger. And I hang around people that make me think bigger because I'm okay. I'm comfortable. I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not broke, but I'm not fucking, you know, I'm not worth a hundred million dollars either. Mm -hmm. um, I'm somewhere in between there. So it's always a level to go up. And if I see it's possible, if one person put a big toe on the moon, I mean, anybody really can do it if you put our mind to it. So when I see my guys, like right now when we're on the phone, my guy's sending me messages. He sent me, he sent me screen grabs every week of what his Bitcoin is doing and what they're doing with their different streaming accounts. And it's, it's six, seven figures sometimes a month, 700,000, 800,000, a million bucks in a month. And these are people that are not fighters. These are people that are people that understand the algorithm and found a way out of no way during this pandemic to make money. So that really makes me want to stretch myself as a, as a person and go and find those bags out there. I was listening to uh, The Undertaker recently, and he said that of all of injuries he suffered in his career, tearing his shoulder was not only the most painful, but it was the one that did him in ultimately. You suffered a torn labrum in the opening round of a title fight against Damian Maya. How were you able not only to continue, but to win that match? You know, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of hardcore people don't recognize that. Um, 
not only did I suffer a torn labrum with the first punch I threw the whole fight, like a lot of people are like, oh, you should just keep hitting him. Like he came in for a takedown very quickly and I knew he would. And we practiced on it, it was called a shovel uppercut. You don't turn your hand like that because it turns your shoulder and it gives away the fact that you're throwing uppercut. So you just relax and you just bring your hand straight up like this. And you're going to hit the chin the same way. It's faster. It's, it's more discreet. So I practiced that as a fighter named Charlie Oliveira. Um, a little bit unorthodox, but punched like a fucking horse. But he did that, knocked somebody clean out with it. And I'm like, shit, I'm going to use this for this fight. So I cracked him. Boom. I landed it so flush. He was coming in harder on the takedown. At the same time, I was throwing a punch. And Robert, I threw it, shot like 12 light bulbs cracking in my shoulder. It just ripped out, right? Now, at this point, I feel like the the industry, the division, I feel like people just wanted to see me lose for some reason, right? And I was like, fuck that, man. I'm not giving this dude my belt. So at that point in time, I had to convert. And I had to, you know, do a counter offense. I had to stop a million shots. You know what I mean? And that's what I had to do to make sure that I got the victory. And I did the same thing against Calvin Gasolin. I broke my foot. Um, the first kick of the whole fight. And I beat him almost every round. And he missed weight by 10 pounds. Did the same thing against fucking Darren Till. I fucking punched him and ripped this motherfucker from Ruta to Tuta every ligament tore on the way up. And then I hadn't thrown two elbows in my life. One against Paul Daly, one against Terry Safadine. And I had to convert from punching to elbowing because my hand was messed up. So I had it in me to just fucking say, fuck him. I grew up in the streets, gang banging. This fight shit ain't as scary to me as, as it is for normal people. But my last couple of fights, man, I just felt like it was either a combination of just not being there, not 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 enjoying, not enjoying it. You know what I mean? I wasn't enjoying it. I'm gonna be real with you. And it also got to the point where I felt like the life that I was living prior to those losses, I was out of pocket. I was out of position with what I feel like was in line with my faith. And I was living like a fucking rock star and I was fucking all over the place. And it was cool at the moment. But the victories I was winning, I basically I brainwashed myself that my lifestyle, what I'm doing is separate from fighting. I'm training hard and winning. So why would I stop? Like, it's not affecting my fighting. I'm still at the top of the chain, but I was winning from the fruits of my labor, the seeds I planted before then. And it was blossoming. It was nothing that I was doing at the time that was causing me to win. So when I changed my life and I started getting back into alignment and started, you know, really getting zeroed into focus, my last three camps, I literally did everything and anything and above and beyond to be right but I still had to deal with the harvest. I still had to deal with the seeds I planted before those fights came up. And I do, in my heart, feel like those last little thorn bushes are gone. And I feel like I don't need to rethink everything and train, train differently and change camps and get a new coach and don't bring this person in and do, uh, go keto and do all this other shit. I ain't got to do all that. Do what I was doing, add a little bit more, be more specific for this person just because it's a new opponent. But also just recognize I got it. I am. I'm still that dude. I'm still the best welterweight of all time, and um, I just need to go out there and perform. And I'm not putting the pressure on myself of rankings or losing four fights in a row or, you know, fucking damn. That sounds crazy. I never would have thought I was gonna lose again ever. Let's know back to back. Let's know three. Like to me, it's still really surprising. Even thought that I would lose to a fucking uh, somebody named Kamaro Gilbert and fucking Colby. And I beat the gorilla natural born killer and the fucking, you know what I mean? The fuck, gorilla natural born killer and the ruthless one, right? Those are the hardest and harder, way harder matchups, way more dangerous, way more like none of the guys I fought really, I take that back. Burns probably could have. Um, 
But none of those other two guys, um, Usman or Kobe, I don't feel like they had in any. They have enough fucking um, enough fucking ass on their punches to knock me out. None of them can stop me. Like I was the worst version of myself in a world title fight, and it's still in five rounds they couldn't get me out of there. I would have gotten every last one of them out of there if they looked like that. Every last one of them. It's amazing to hear you talk like this. This is like such a genuine and honest conversation because most athletes will give you kind of the sound bites. And just to hear someone say, here's the shit I dealt with. As you were saying that, Tyron, one of the things that came to mind is my appreciation for Tom Brady. And to think about what that guy has done with all the fame, all the money, supermodel wife, he could have been distracted. He could have lost focus. And to think he became Tom Brady and just won his seventh Super Bowl as an elite athlete, when you see what he's done, pretty mind blowing. It's not mind blowing. It's, it's like um, him. You look at Breeze. You look at Kel Sanderson. They're not. They just made a. They had enough luck. They train hard enough. They try to live right, whether it's um, up to par with your religion or your guidelines or how you think they should live. But I think on a day to day basis, they chose to make the right decision more than the, the opposite decision. And I think that that adds up. I feel like if when I was on my title run, you know, if I would have been true to the tyrant that I was prior to that, I don't think I would have ever lost. I think when I lost to Roy McDonald, that would have been my last loss of my career. In my mind, that was my last loss. I never envisioned Usman beating me. Like I mentored these guys. Usman, Kobe, they were texting me and who do I, who should I fight and who coming up next and Chap, I want to respect you, but they want me to fight you. What's going on? Da, da, da. Like I got text messages to show it and prove it. And one day maybe it'll come out. Like I mentored, like literally mentored these guys. Usman walked up to me at my after party at Club Chateau in Vegas and he asked me, how do you feel when Dana wrapped the belt around you, man? He was at my after party. And I'm like, shit. I said, to be honest, it didn't really feel like nothing because I imagine it feeling so much better. And I had won the world title so many times in my mind, so many times on the treadmill when I went to get off, so many times when I was in a sparring session, I knew I could have just took the easy way and I chose to push a little bit. I had already won, so when I won, it didn't really feel like nothing, I said. But you'll see one day, you'll see what it feel like, but I never thought it was going to be against me. I used to call him Tomorrow Usman because I did think he was going to be a champion. I gave him his credit. I do think Gaslam has a chance to maybe be a champion at some point, especially the way he fought against Israel. But I do think Darren Till will be a champion. These are people that are so young in the sport. They got so much time to bounce back and reinvent themselves and, you know, kind of let their balls drop a little bit and really fucking find their, their niche that I think those guys will be champion. I just felt like I was a guy that they wanted to measure all the up and coming fighters, all the Kelvin Gaslam, all the Terrence Tills, all the fucking um, Gilbert Burns or the specialist guys like Damian Maya, Crotty fucking karate kid and all these goddamn shit like that. They, they had me. I was the one. I never got the super fights. I never got the GSP. I never got the Nate Nick Diaz. I never got the Bisming fight. I never got the double up on the belts. And I asked me and Michael Bisming walked to Dana White ourselves. We both current title holders. We said, we want to fight each other, make it happen. He said, Oh, you guys do the fight. Let me stick to the promoter. Why wouldn't you make that fight happen? Why wouldn't you give me George St. Pierre when I got a text message and I put on the internet and George is saying he wants to fight me? Why are you making me look like I'm fucking making it up when you asked me to fight Nate Diaz? And he says, yes, pay me more money. I say yes. So when they ask me, am I going to fight him? I say, yeah, I'm willing to bet my house to fight my next fight. Why are you going to act like I, that never happened, right? So if you notice me in the last two or three years, I've been real quiet. I don't say shit. 
because in the, in defending yourself and bringing up facts, which all my shit is facts. Nobody wants to hear facts. Once we're one, we're not studying, we're not researching. Whatever Google says, whatever um, WebMD says, whatever uh, Shade Room, TMZ, fucking World Star, or fucking Hollywood Unlocked, or whatever platform you watch and whatever your appetite is, that's the law. We don't contest it. We want to change it. People will repeat the exact same thing. Dana White, UFC, Connor, they'll repeat it word for word. They'll never do their research. They won't even take the time to change one word. I mean, oh, you choking big fights. Dana White say you choking big fights. Oh, you bored. Nobody want to watch. They say the same exact thing, but, but it tells me that everybody's really programmable. So I can either listen to the robots and a lot of them allow them to tell me what God already showed me as a lie, or I can trust a person that's never failed me. So that's kind of what I did. Um, and when I'm silent, I'm violent. So like when I'm quiet, that's what I mean I'm cooking up some shit. So the last year and a half, two years, I've been make, I've been once again doing some things that are going to be groundbreaking for any athlete that's ever competed in mixed martial arts, not just the UFC. Uh, I was the first of many, the first blog. Champ Camp was the first one. I dare somebody to use Champ Camp. It's trademark, it's patent. Don't even try to play games. Because the UFC tried it one time and it was like Champ Camp. I said, no, take that down. I'm champ camp, win, lose, or draw. I was a champ before. I was champ camp before I won the belt. Look at champ camp episode one. I was training to fight who? Robbie Lawler. And I was talking about they counted me out already. They want him to fight fucking GSP in Madison Square Garden. They want him to fight Connor. Keep that same energy. When I knock him out, I want those fights. I want that money. I said that way before the fight. And then when after the fight comes up, Wonder Boy wants to fight me. I'm like, no, you didn't want to fight me. You said I was going to lose. You want to fight Robbie. Now you go fight Robbie. I'm going to fight George St. Pierre, right? And everybody got mad. Oh, you just got the belt. You picking fights. But look at my shit. My shit's all documented. And I think, not think, I know that I'm an athlete that my legacy is after I get done. When people stop, freeze. They're not in the moment. They're not got to fight every four weeks. They're not hearing what everybody's saying and regurgitating. They'll get a chance to look at what I did, how I got the belt in two years, whoever did that. So I want to talk to you about when an athlete goes off the rails, because it really hit a chord with me when you were talking about that. We see so many athletes who kind of succumb to fame yeah. and at different stages of their career. And does an athlete know when it's happening? Like when you're in the midst of going off the rails, do you realize you're going off the rails? Um, it's like this. Like for me, I never had an identity problem. I always knew who I was and whose I was. I was very, very clear where I was going, right? And what we do, not just as an athlete, just as a nation, just a human race. If this is a rule, we constantly merge in that rule where it fits our life a little bit better, right? You know what I mean? Oh, we should be able to do a little bit of this. Mm, do a little bit of that ain't bad. And this was the Old Testament or this was, you know what I mean, before this. And we all change it. You know, there's something in the Bible that said it's going to come a point in time when, where, where people are going to want to go to what their itching ears want. Not what the sound doctor said. Not what's going to, it's been the same since day one. Nothing has ever changed. The commandments has never changed. It's not like 11 commandments now. It's not, they didn't cut off two and make it nine. They didn't amend it, right? But the way we view, you know, same-sex marriages, the way we view um, cannabis, the way we view um, insider trading, everything is so different. We even watch murder on Instagram now. In the 90s, you had never seen war. We can see the whole war going on Instagram. So now we desensitize our true morals and values. For me at that time, 
I was still living pretty good. I was still a family man. I still, you know what I mean, was grinding. But then I started getting that little, that little taste. And we always filled the void of what we didn't have when we were younger. I never had a pair of name brand shoes until high school. I always watched all the guys with the money. I always watched all the dope dealers. I always seen the people that can buy the girls the little gifts and stuff like that. And he was like, you know what I mean? He was tricking if he wanted to, but whatever. He That's what he can do. Then once I started getting to the point where it's like, I got tired of being a goody two-shoe. I'm like, John is fucking doing this. Connor's doing that. That person's doing that. I'm not even getting paid the, the, the money they get paid. Diaz is doing this. The people that were the most unruly made the most money. Throwing cans, hidden runs, failed tests. No, those people made the most money. So I was trying to find a place where the people that knew me knew knew that basically I'm still tiring. But to make this bag, man, I got to do what I got to do, right? Not to say I was changing, but if I thought I'm going to beat this dude ass, instead of saying, you know, I'm training hard. My coach has got me prepared. I'm stronger. I'm faster. I'm, I want, I'm hungrier. In my mind, I was really thinking I'm going to fuck this dude up. Then I just start saying what I felt, right? Some people liked it. Some people didn't. But it was always real. It was just an unfiltered version of myself. That ultimate underdog kind of like, let me show you kind of person started to take over the real tyrant. You know, I went through a two year, a lot of people don't know this. I just publicly started talking about it. I've been divorced for a year. It took me three years to get divorced. Like I was on a, I was on my mom's couch during most of those side fights. When I fought Darren Till, I didn't have no training partners. I had three weeks to get ready for the fight. I brought in um, jo- um, Jocko Kristoff. Cause he was a big fucking UFC what, uh, middleweight. I brought him in. He tore his ACL the first day, the first go. He tore his ACL. I had no training partners. One of my coaches in Germany, and I was forced to fight on that date. I didn't get another date, and I made the best of it, and I made it happen. But during that time period, man, I was living a crazy life. I was blowing money like you can never imagine. I was going to ATM every day, taking out five. I was maxing out the withdrawal every day for a year. 500 bucks, 300 bucks, 200 every day because I just want to have money on me because if I want to do something, I want to be able to do it. And that's that was the life I was living for a while. And it's just like when you crash so hard, it's like you hit the floor and it's like you hit the floor, you was at the top and now you stop and you look up and you got a one by one climbing Empire State Building. That's embarrassing. The fall down is embarrassing. Like look at the UFC handle this week. I'm not embarrassed. It's a part of like, so many people are part of my highlight reel, right? Look at the UFC. I'm 90% of the UFC right now. Ooh, this is the way you take out the number one contender. Ooh, this is, um, you know, Kamar Usman. Ooh, all these pictures should be an album cover. Parental advisor, I'm the only one doing music on it. I'm the only one with a song that's about to go go with Wiz Khalifa, with Burner, with Be Real, with Nino Man, all these different people that want to do music with me. Top Grammy Award with producers. Like, I'm really a musician. I'm an artist overall. But... You look at the page and you see everything that solidifies Usman is me. Everything that solidified Burns is me. Everything that solidified Kobe is me. You can't do that without saying how great I was at that moment. How I was the first blog. How I was the first or the second person ever. And still the only only two of us have won four, um, defended four times successfully in one calendar year, me and John Jones. Still have the highest take. No matter who took me down, no matter what happened in my last fight, I have the highest takedown defense in the history of the sport. The fastest knockout in championship history for welterweight. And maybe, I haven't done the math, but maybe the fastest route to the top. I was intentional. I didn't come to the UFC for no bullshit. I intentionally was fighting Jay Heron, who fought um, George St. Pierre. Jake Shields, who won two rounds of um, George St. Pierre, who I'm training with now. Just got done, just left the gym with Jake Shields. Um, Jake Shields. Then I fought Koshek, who fought for the title 
and fought George St. Pierre twice. And then I fought fucking Roy McDonald, who ended up fighting one of the fights of the year, right? With Roy with fucking um, Robbie Lawler. And I also had a victory of Carlos. Every fight I had was a, a challenger of the belt or a former champion of the belt, interim or regular, right? Think about it. Until I started fighting these up and coming guys, all of it, Koscheck, Jake Shields, Jay Heron, Rory McDonald. I was fighting, trying to fight Johnny Hendricks, who was a former champion. That didn't go through. You know what I mean? And then I got in the spot to fight for the title. So I've been very intentional in, in a very quick space. I pune, right? Nobody's been in more movies. Nobody. Not Ronda, not Randy Couture. I just, I, you know, it's funny. I just left Randy's gym. Randy was my manager for four years. Nobody's been in more films. I got the no, number one film on, uh, on Netflix, Cutthroat City, right? Written by the Rizzo. Nobody told, told you about that. You didn't see that on the UFC website. You see me on there to boost somebody else. How are you going to use me to boost somebody else when you don't give me the credit for what I did and how I did it? I did it by myself. I grew my own following. I didn't have the Sage North Cut and the Paige Van Zandt and the Israel Adesanya boost. I didn't have the Ronda Rousey give your shirt to the rock and let him wear it and then put fucking Drake in a corner with Connor or, you know what I mean? I didn't have that. I, I hired a company to optimize. I hired a company to teach me the algorithm. And I went out there and I did it myself. Humor on this day, motivation on this day, spiritual on this day. Every day I had a schedule. I had a team. We did it. And we and I got so tired of it. Then I'm like, I don't want to do it no more. You know what I mean? I don't want to fucking, hey, guys, we're going to put this goddamn CBD on your neck. I don't want to do that shit. I want to say I'm sore. It's a motherfucker. I'm tired. I'm busting my shit out here. I'm fucking coming for blood. I'm tired. Let me go ahead and get this fucking food. Where my CBD stuff at? Now it's me. Now it's organic. Now if he's really doing this and this is what he's recovering, now my code, my code for whatever company I was with, I had the, I had the most sales. Outside of fucking George St. Pierre and Randy Couture, I had the most the royalties for reflection because I was really moving behavior because my followers, I don't care what Instagram does. They can chop. They can do any hack. You ain't going to see none of my followers drop. They can get rid of the bots. They can do whatever. And I got real activating people that fuck with me. And it's like, that's important to me. More important than the money. More important than what people think. Because the fame is cool for a second, but the legacy is forever. You know what I mean? I did it my way. I came in this sport the way I wanted. The industry could never afford me. I never put a price tag on me. And I never kissed the pinky ring. I never will. Tyron, I know you talked about this in the past a little bit about how UFC will put the kind of the machine behind people who are most marketable and their fighting prowess is almost secondary to who is the biggest influencer in a sense. Yeah. Saying this after you won and defended the belt, how do you view that balance between kind of keeping fans engaged and nurturing kind of a fighting meritocracy? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have to battle with whether I'm a star or not, right? If ABC Studios thinks I'm a star, if TMZ thinks I'm a star, if these other other areas of art thinks I'm a star and they, they're putting time and money into me, um, I don't have to guess. And I know who I am. I know what I bring to the table. I know if I'm marketable. You know, I feel like I was the best analyst on the desk at that time. I feel like when it comes out to just going out of the box, if someone tells you just swing, you know what I mean? I'm the one that contested. I'm the one that challenged that rule every single time, right? That was me. So I know kind of my lane. But when you think about my relationship and what I've done, especially in the, with the UFC, it was a point in time where it was me. I got to recognize that no matter way I think I should be promoting market, I don't own the UFC. And I'm blessed and thankful to, to, to become a millionaire from fighting from them. 
And it took me a while to do that. And I feel like when I kind of recognize that I'm going against the grain, I'm trying to prove that all these allegations are wrong. I'm trying to do this. It's too many followers to contest it. Like too many people that don't want to do their research. They just going to listen to the encyclopedia. And at that time it's Joe Rogan and Dana White. And I was, and I was not going against him. Me, like if I show my text message with Dana, me and Dana don't even talk about fighting. I'm gonna be real with you. I'd have been at the Super Bowl with this kid, not the kid. I've been with the Super Bowl with his kids and his family. I'd have been at his son's birthday parties with Kendrick Lamar. No other fighters done that. We got the craziest relationship, but when you listen to what we talk, it's always respect, it's always whatever, and it's never really ever about fighting. But with the fighting stuff, it took me a while to recognize it don't matter the way I think this should be ran, the way I think I should be marketed, the way I think they should treat me. I don't know what their game plan is behind the scenes. I don't know what their goals are for the next five, 10 years. They got 600 fighters, right? And I just basically took a stance where I just stood back. But in doing so, I think the damage was so far done as far as like Tyron Woodley is up again. And I never was. I'm like, I'm never against this dude. I'm just not going to let nobody. I don't care who you are. No man's going to say no bullshit about me and get away with it if it ain't real. And I feel like that was my dynamic. But I still, through it all, I still walked away with five world titles. I still boosted my, my followers in the millions by myself. And I'm still going to go on and do great things. I'm going to go out here and win this fucking fight. And I'm just going to go out there and focus on what's important. What's important is performance. I've been a champion five times. Who, who makes the most money? The champion or Connor? The champion or Nick Diaz? The champion or Nate Diaz? The champion or fucking Jorge Masvidal? They make the most money with prize fighters. Tyron, I want to ask you about Khabib because obviously after his last fight, he pretty much said he's done, although no one's ever done because Dana throws enough money at you and you come back. What are your thoughts about Khabib in terms of where he is on the GOAT scale for MMA? With my honest opinion, or you want the shit that everybody else said? I would. I think you're all honesty. So I think, run with I think, it. I think Khabib is good, but I think John Jones is the greatest. I think underneath John Jones is Demetrius Johnson. And after that, they they gonna have to fight it out for who is in the third spot. I think Khabib, the way he fought, was very phenomenal. I felt his pressure was unrelenting. He didn't really fight a guy like Michael Chandler. Um, he beat a guy like Gaethje, which was impressive to me because great Gaethje had the pressure, he had the wrestling, he had all the stuff that he could have pressed um, buttons. But what I think, the same way you speak about Brady and I talked about Breeze and Kel Sanderson, they did everything right. They didn't get distracted. They didn't get into the hoopla. They didn't get into the materials. They wasn't chasing women. You know what I mean? They were probably doing the rehab. And I haven't been in there, but I'm telling you, someone, at, especially in our sport, when a four-ounce loves touch you and it's a wrap, he was doing everything right. He was living right. He was doing things right. For that, I think that attributed to more of his success than what we recognize because he wasn't the greatest striker. He wasn't even the greatest wrestler. He just had the greatest pressure. His ground and pound, in my opinion, is in top five. He get on top and you can hear the, 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 the fucking gloves smacking. Like we heard when Gaethje fought um, – Tony Ferguson. You can hear that. And it's very hard to generate that kind of power from the top position. So I felt like he was unique at that. He was unique at getting to your back, getting around your neck and just being a backpack and relentless. He was always in great shape. He was always aggressive. And he forced you into his game plan. He didn't let nobody stay outside and do what they wanted to do. He always got in there and did what he needed to do. For that, I would put him definitely in the top five 
he could be in the number three spot, but I would have to look back. There's some people that people that I think don't get the respect. I don't think Chris Whiteman get the respect for who he beat when he beat him. He was undefeated when he fought Anderson Silva, who at that time was a GOAT. You beat the GOAT twice and you're not in the conversations of, you know what I mean, top 10 overall, it's embarrassing. He beat Vitor Belfort. He beat fucking all these fighters. You know what I mean? Machida. These are world champions he's beat. He's beating three world champions. I didn't even beat that many world champions, right? You know, so I feel like when you look at that, you got to kind of put him in a different place. And yeah, he's... He threw a spinning. Think about it. If he would have never thrown that fucking spinning attack against Luke Rocco. What if he won that fight? He may not have lost. If I would have been in alignment and fucking not out here like T Money, fucking blowing money and fucking doing stupid shit, I may not have ever lost to Usman. And I may not have been in position. I was going to fight Usman. Then I was going to fight Kofi. Then I was going to fight for the middleweight belt. I could have walked away in the fog after that if I wanted to. I still have not tapped into the middleweight division yet. That's that's something that I wanted to handle business in the welterweight, and then, then walk, actually walk away and go into a, a whole new division. That's what I wanted to do. I walk around 200 pounds, 205. I'm not small for a welterweight. I fucking fight like shit. It's two fights that we fight to make weight and fight to whoop this dude ass. So, so I feel like had I been more focused at those times on what was important, prioritize those things, then I would have never lost. So that's what makes Khabib special in my mind. He put everything together. And um, he's definitely one of the GOATs. I can't put him as one. John Jones, no matter what he did outside the octagon, he is number one. You know what I mean, his resume is ignorant. I mean, he probably lost four rounds in his life. Aaron, you mentioned uh, Joe Rogan. What is your relationship with him now? I know several years ago you said he was giving horrendous UFC commentary, but you've been on his podcast since. What's your uh, opinion on, obviously, as the biggest podcast in the world, and the UFC is really trying to kind of lean on that a little bit. What's your opinion on Rogan and the way he's kind of not taken over, but been more and more involved in the sport of UFC? I think I misunderstood Joe for a while. And I think Joe was such a big fan of mine that he had to make sure he wasn't biased. And sometimes when you try not to be biased, it sounds like you're hating on the person. And also, I think he saw the potential of me and what I can be and how I can be in a sport. Like, the way I'm built, the way I move, how I punch, how I wrestle, my jiu-jitsu pedigree, uh, my IQ, and just the competitiveness, I probably should be in the top three overall fighters ever. Like Dana White walked up to me and said, if I can create a video game character, which obviously you can, you would be the number one candidate. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you did to that person in the last 30 seconds, you could do that to anybody. And if you do that from beginning to end, you and nobody can ever fuck with you, right? Me and Joe Rogan have talked a lot since then, you know, and I went on this podcast and I thought he was kind of baiting me to fucking go in a certain direction, but he wasn't. I think he's just expecting more from me and he expected me to consistently do what he, he can outside in think I should be able to do. And ever since then, we've been cool. We talked, you know, I've had people that have reached out to me. Hey, man, we want this for Joe Rogan. And I congratulate him on his podcast. And Wiz Khalifa wanted to, to buy a studio in L.A. because he didn't know that um, that he was keeping both. Because so it's a gym in there. He can record music in there and lift weights in there. So Wiz was like, hey, man, hey, Joe, up and see if I can fucking buy that studio from him. So we've talked a lot. And I respect him. I respect what he's did um, in the space of podcasting. Um, we did a podcast yesterday. Yesterday it was me, Wiz Khalifa, Eddie Bravo, um, all the guys from the High Rollers Tournament. You know, then we had so many people, uh, social media people coming in. It was crazy. That's what he did. He created the same type of culture where people can let their hair down. And we almost forgot the mic was on, right? 
And um, you got to respect him for that. And um, you don't really hear too much about Joe, right? You don't hear about a lot of bullshit about him. You don't see a lot of fucking tabloid pictures about him. And once again, it gets to the point where you're really good and when you're the greatest, you're the best. And then you become the elite when you're able to focus and maintain it and hone it in. Not let the money get in a lot. Because with guys, it's money and women. Two things. Money and women. War has been started. People have been killed over it. People have lost world titles over it. Money and women. And I think I've never in my mind saw him like outlandishly that the money gets to him. And I've never seen a whole bunch of women with his name in his mouth in a negative way. What was the craziest purchase you made as you're going through those crazy times? What was like the dumbest or craziest moment for you? I had bought, um, I just won a title fight. I got to beat Darren Till or somebody. I got a bonus. And then um, I wanted to always want to get a Rolex. And I was like, I want a Rolex. I want a Rolex. And I want to go shop for Rolexes. I'm like, these are nice. I'm mean, they're not that. I thought they were way more expensive, but I was looking at the wrong size. I'm like, in my mind, it's just, okay, this is a fucking 36 millimeter Rolex. Let me look at that 40. Then it, boom, oh shit, that's 12,000 more. Like, like the money started going crazy. And then I always told myself I didn't deserve anything, right? Because, you know, I grew up in Ferguson, man. We didn't, it was 13 of us been evicted from my house, you know what I mean? So I never grew up with shit. So I would, I couldn't qualify my mind why I could spend that kind of money on a watch or spend that kind of money on a car, spend that kind of money on anything outside of somebody else. So I was buying a lot of, I bought like seven cars that year, bought my mom a house, I bought my house, you know what I mean? I bought my son's, my stepson's dad a car, my fucking sitter a car. I was fucking all over the place. But I was on this movie set doing this movie called A Favorite in Tampa. And I came right from the um, title fight, right to set to film, right? And I was filming on the set. I was trying to figure out what watch I wanted to get, right? I said, fuck it, I'm going to buy a watch. So the jewelers overnighted me the watches. One came from New York from a jeweler. One came from Miami from a jeweler. One was this one. One was the same Rolex, but it had a gold dial, right? And I was like, fuck, which one am I going to get, man? I don't fucking know. I was like, it was presidential Rolex watches. I said, fuck it, I'm buying both of them, right? <laughs> both of them, yeah. And then, but then I qualified it. This one's going to my nine-year-old. My my gold one that's like a 41 millimeter. That's um it's one that's like they don't make that that um 41 millimeter anymore, right? So that's my oldest son. And then I'm buying two more. So all my kids will have a Rolex with paperwork. So when they graduate college, it'll be an investment. They can pass it down generation to generation. My my business partners did that. His dad bought the most, his great grandfather, sorry, bought the most expensive Rolex they had on the market for 5000 It's worth almost seven figures right now. I'm scared to ask how much you spent, man. <laughs> I'm like scared. A lot. A lot. Can you adopt me and maybe I can get one too? <laughs> yeah. I'm... I mean, we can see what we can do. Yeah, I spent a lot of money. I spent a lot of money in one day. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm spending. I'm like, oh, I got to write it off in taxes anyway. And I've been doing this for everybody else. And I'm a champion, man. I just fucking want a bonus. I work my ass off. I want to treat myself. And I did it. I was like, fuck. Tyron, your good friend and uh, former Missouri wrestling team and teammate Ben Askren is boxing YouTuber Jake Paul in April. Mm-hmm. Some fans were a little bit worried when they saw Ben hitting a bag this week. It looked kind of weak. Might have been a tactic, though. What is your prediction for this fight? You know, Ben has really dumpy power. And the only way I can explain it, he's not going to be like, ha, 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 he's not going to be doing all that. But he's like, poof, oh, shit, what the fuck is that? Right? And his ability to cling to you 
he didn't get hit very much in um, UFC or Bellator or 1FC. He didn't take much damage. Um, he has a way of clinging to you and adapting. And I think if you never wrestle with Ben, he'll zap your energy. Like my coach, Dean Thomas, he used to spar the whole gym, heavyweight, lightweight. He never got tired. He walk around and nobody could outbox him in the whole American top two gym. I don't care who you are. Dean Thomas used to run the table on everybody. Every, he don't care. No good hand wraps. He'll have his, um, you know, the lace on the glove. He'll wrap it around his glove, shove it in the glove. He'll spar anybody. But Ben was the only one I ever seen get him tired. You know what I mean? So when I was trying to see if I was in shape, Ben was like, if he told me, yeah, you're in good shape, then I would feel like, you know what I mean? All right, I'm in good shape, right? That's something that Jake Hall is not going ever ever have somebody to mimic that so hand fighting pushing pulling dropping missing punches weird body punches shit talking like Ben's gonna be talking mad shit to him he used to do it in college they used to like we'd be weighing in he walk up to behind the guy like hey you're gonna be a pussy this time you're gonna fucking wrestle me for real right he'll say that and he'll get into a dude head now the only way to do could baby win is to keep it close and keep being away but not being mind fucked him now he go out there and trying to take Ben's head off and Ben pin him so I think Jake has a chance in the first round, maybe the first two rounds. And I like Jake. I'm, I'm closer with Logan, but I like Jake. But, you know, when it's my dog, I got to ride for my dog, especially when it's facts. I don't think it's going to look the sexiest, the combination. But when Ben hits you, it fucking hurts. Go back and look at his Bellator fights when he was grinding, pounding people and, and fucking do, 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 do. He has very strong, dense, dumpy power, and the static strength is infinite. He'll hold it. He'll get a soccer ball and rear naked choke it with full flexion and have a conversation with you. Nobody, I've never seen anybody be able to hold that type of static um, strength for as long as he can. So my prediction is he's probably going to drown him out. And Ben says seventh round. I don't know why they want to fight the many rounds, but I think I think probably fifth or sixth round. Ben probably end up with a TKO. Iron, what do you think about Connor? Is he done? Should he head over to the WWE at this point? I don't I don't know Connor, so I don't speak on people I don't know. I met him, I've been around him. We had a little bitty little riff one time. But in reality, as a businessman, we may we may never see another version of him ever again. Anybody that come after that will mimic him. He's not the best mouthpiece ever. Chell Sonnen is. Chell Sonnen is the best. Nobody's better ever been better than Chell. He was the best mouthpiece that we've ever had um, in MMA. But I do think um, as far as businessman, and Connor doesn't have to win the fights anymore, right? I got to win. I mean, I can't lose. He lost to fucking Khabib, lost to Floyd Mayweather. He beat Cerrone, but come on now. Let's not act like Cerrone was fucking number one contender at the time. You know what I mean? But he can pick and choose who he want to fight. He can pick and choose his back. He can pick and choose how he do it. He lives life the way he wants to. He's making a fortune. But what he set up in his goal to be infamous and make the most money and whatever, he's achieving that goal. But he's not the best fighter. He did look fucking amazing in the last fight. Him and Dustin Poirier. In my opinion, is one of is one of Connor's best looking opening rounds outside the one he had against Nate Diaz, where he was just making a miss and sniping them. But he just got off balance with those leg kicks. And when he got off balance, he got hit. Nothing, nothing to shake his head for, you know what I mean? Dustin Poirier not known to switch it up. He known the brawl. He kept saying that. What did he do? Went for a takedown. Stopped Connor's momentum and completely switched up the whole game plan. Connor was throwing a power jab. We've never seen him throw a power jab. He's naturally left-handed. If you watch him sign autographs, he's really left-handed, Connor. But he was, wow, power jab. And you can see Dustin was not prepared for it because everybody looking for what? Connor's straight left hand. 
and then he used it to set up his punches. He was picking Dustin apart. Dustin made the, you know, the mental note, shit, let me take him down to the ground. The same place where Nate finished him, same place where Khabib finished him. So I thought he looked good. I thought he did well. I think as a businessman, he's a boss. Um, I don't know him as a person, so I don't really speak on that. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I made a lot of money fighting on his cars. You know what I mean? I bought my house off 205. I actually had a room in my house called Room 205. I mean, I say what I say. I'm not going to let him call me a bitch. You know, that's never going to happen. But I got I can't act like I don't respect him as a businessman, and I'm not grateful for being able to be a part of that moment, you know, in, in Madison Square Garden. I was on the car before he was on there. So when the UFC was like, oh, will we put you on the car? No, I was on the car already. You guys announced that when we were in New York. So don't act like you did me some favor. <laughs> when you look at um, celebrity fighters, and I- I'm trying to figure out how, I- like the whole celebrity fighting world right now, are you a fan of what's going on? I know you mentioned Jake and Logan, they're your boys, mm-hmm. but are you a fan of everybody kind of jumping into the craft and trying to fight the real fighters like you guys? Or is it is just the whole shtick dumb and old in your mind? I mean, we, we need to be entertained right now. We're in a pandemic. You know, every city's not open and thriving. And we're bored. Sports, thank God, they're kind of back now a little bit, sort of, kind of. But at the end of the day, I really respected the Mike Tyson, Roy Jones fight, fight that we never would have saw at the time. Those guys obviously probably been through quite a bit of money. We heard the story about Don King and what he did for fucking Mike Tyson's uh, bank account I don't know where Roy, Roy Jones is financially, but I, I like to see them go out there. It's almost like severance pay to me. It's almost like we're saluting them for the OGs they were back in the day, and I'm just happy to see them go out there and make it back, and they still look good, you know what I mean? Um, some of the other fights, uh, it, the, the Paul brothers, I feel like they, they belong in that, in, in that era because they're real good athletes. They can punch. They've won boxing fights, and they, they make it fun, dude. They bring everything to the table. So they are, in my mind, they're the front runners of it. Some of the other, like, like my buddy Shamik Moore, the one in the movie Dope, Spider-Man, yeah. Cutthroat City, he wants to box. And he actually is a good boxer. So we've been talking about that, trying to find him somebody to box. I think we're going to see more of it. And I think for us, it's good for fighters to, to allow people to see that it's not as easy as it looks. And also for fans to kind of stop getting, stop getting in a um, mind frame that you can only do one thing. You know what I mean? Like you said, you got a side gig, right? It may not be your original bag but that don't mean you can't pursue it. You know what I mean? People that are branders, they connect dots. They don't say, oh no, only do merchandise or only do product or only do parodies or only do content or only do television, only do movies, only do YouTube. No, anything you can touch that connects and makes sense to go together, put it together. Fighting and music has been together for how long? long 1920s, the boxing fucking... Yeah. Old boxing fight with the fur coats and she, come on now, we've been we've been together. You gonna tell me two chains probably couldn't play collegiate basketball? He just chose a different path as his as his as his main bag. You know what I mean? A lot of people think Quavo and you know I watched it's a rapper named JB Blockboy, right? And I don't know a lot of his music, but my son does. I played in a celebrity basketball tournament with Floyd Mayweather, him, the Migos, and all these other people that people like say can play ball. This dude can ball against NBA players, dunking, rebounding, passing, jump shotting. If he wanted to be a basketball player in a collegiate level, I can't say he can be pro. Collegiate level, I would say, yes, he can be a collegiate level. Mercedes Lewis, we started training him. He can really fucking throw, punch, kick, elbow, knee, and he understands it, the art of Muay Thai. He's very smart at it. 
Wisco Leaf is the same way. So I think it's good for people to see that. So for people like me, that when I go out and do a song or an album or a movie or TV, it's not like, oh, here go another athlete trying to do music. No, here goes another artist stroking on a different, um, different canvas. I was actually going to transition to the rap part of this because I remember the first time I saw Dame Lillard rap and I was like, man, this guy can actually throw some bars down and he freestyles. Yeah, Dame Lillard is a buddy of mine too. He's the best person that started athletics first as far as what you guys see and did the music after. But if you look at him, you look at Iman, these guys, they've been doing music. Like Iman posted a video when he was in high school and rapping and Lillard the same thing. Like this ain't something new for them. They're real MCs, but they saw an opportunity to be legendary and great in sport. And they took that one first. Every other area of entertainment opens up room for another category. When you're The Rock and you did well in football, that opened up the door for WWE, that opened up the door for fucking movies. Nobody's telling The Rock, no, just go back to college football or NFL football. No, they're not doing that, right? They're not telling Ice Cube, no, just go and rap. Don't do fucking Ride Along. Don't do Friday After Next. Don't do a fucking Players Club. Don't do Are We There Yet. They're not telling them that. So why would they tell an athlete that everybody glorifies, that everybody want to watch, that everybody's betting on, that everybody's happy, sad, mad, or in between when they win, lose, or draw? That's the most creative art, especially mixed martial artists. It's in our title, martial artist. It don't just say boxer. It don't say just wrestler. It don't just say football player. The one sport that actually, he's a mixed martial artist because you to blend these so well is an art. You're going to tell me that the same mind I use for that, I can't go and use on telling the story in a song about being broke, about being evicted, about making millions, about losing it, about coming back up, about being in VIP, about waiting in line. How can you tell me I can't talk from every platform? Being in gang, gang banging, being shot at, fucking beating people up in the street. Whole family full of gangsters. Like, yeah, I can talk about that because it's real life. But that's where we as a society has to change. The Renaissance man was one dude that tried to do a whole bunch of things. And they said he did a lot of things, but he did nothing great. He was a Renaissance man. That was his ass. I can do, I can do several things great. It's Black History Month, obviously. You'd mentioned, obviously, Ferguson. There's an enormous connection in terms of what we've seen with Black Lives Matter and everything we saw in Ferguson. Being a resident and that being your hometown, what are your thoughts about everything that went down there when you look back? First off, I want to I kind of salute the UFC uh, first off. Um, last year, I gave them a lot of shit. They didn't do anything for Black History Month, and I took offense to it. You got guys like me, Demetrius Johnson, John Jones, Daniel Cormier, um, all these different Usman, style bender, whatever you want to say, all these African-American athletes, you know, that have given their blood, sweat, and tears, literally, not like just a saying, like literally blood, sweat, and tears to make this sport what it is. And we can't salute the African-American history and a legacy and, you know, basically overcoming, you know, oppression to be able to have a president, to be able to have a vice president, to be able to have a billionaire, to be able to have a professional athlete, a doctor, a lawyer, a Supreme Court judge, most um, nationalities wouldn't have been able to recover. You know, the Jewish community recovered. Like, how can you recover a Holocaust? I, I believe that should be celebrated more. So if people have an issue with the month being Black History Month and we should celebrate all history, I feel like it's the perfect time to update our textbooks. 
You know what I mean? It was a time where black people couldn't vote. It's a time where they their inventions were stolen, the music and all the culture and the swag and the drip, like we gotta be real, it came from the African-American culture. So now that we're in a digital world, I think we need to start updating the, the historical books using in schools and curriculums because we're on virtual anyway. They don't have to go back and change old textbooks. They can make new books digitally. And I think that, that it needs to be incorporated in American history. Look up the history of Black History Month. It was originally Black History Week. And it was a, it was a month in which uh, Abraham Lincoln was born. So it was kind of like, you know, he was, he was a big, uh, big player with emancipation or whatever, um, as far as many people believe. But at the end of the day, I feel like the UFC hit me up at the end of January. Because I, I turned up last year. I was pissed off. And the year before, we didn't do anything. And the year before that, we did something on February 28th. Me, Phil Davis, Karen Bryant. And I felt like it's a disrespect to us because everything that the UFC stands for, everything that, you know, they embody, it's our behavior kind of code. We kind of got to go along with it. You know what I mean? But you don't want to salute African-American history. So this year they hit me up, end of January, they got a clear in general what they want to do. They got questions they want me to ask. They got videos they want me to shoot. They're asking me questions, what can we do better? I want to. I, I know we get a lot of back and forth lash between me and the UFC. I don't have no smoke with the UFC. I want to put that out there. I do want to salute them because that meant something to me for them to hit me up and try to do something about that earlier than waiting to the end of the fucking um, month. So I'm planning on just not trying to do something every day on my social, but if I feel like I want to salute an African-American female that made history, I want to salute um, Muhammad Ali, I want to salute somebody in armed forces, I want to salute George Washington Carver or, or innovator, I'm going to take my time and do that. And I'm going to also be involved with, you know, the stuff that the UFC has going on for this month. And, you know, I think it's, it's something that we need to really look at, especially with what's going on right now. Like the whole White House was just raided. <laughs> way right <laughs> you know what I mean like motherfuckers in there with pictures and stuff and you know I just I'm not trying to get political because I'm not really a political person but it makes us want to step back and look at like damn what more is going on behind the scenes that we don't know well said Tyron all right Tyron Woodley we're going to get you out on a segment we like to call the hustle round it is brought to you by Boston Market's new Nashville hot chicken sandwich have you had the chicken sandwich, Tyron Woodley, from Boston? Market? I mean, it sounds fire, man. Chicken sandwiches has been fucking people up lately, right? Mm-hmm. We had the, the the two competitor brands, which I won't mention because they're not paying the bills today. The Boston <laughs> Market is in the house with a fire-ass chicken sandwich, and I have not tried it, but I will. You will try it. We'll get you one if I you need try. one. But I'm going to give right. you a series of two options, and you have to choose which one you prefer. You cannot take longer than three seconds, or else it's bad luck for seven years. You got it? Got it. All right. Money or fame? Fame. Better commissioner, Dana White or Adam Silver? Uh, Dana White. Better rapper, Tupac or Biggie? Tupac. More impressive physical specimen, John Jones or George St. Pierre? George St. Pierre. More swag, Conor McGregor or Deion Sanders? Deion Sanders. Big Spoon or Little Spoon? Big Spoon. Better athlete rapper, Dame Lillard or Tyron Woodley? Dame Lillard. Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali. Jordan or Brady? Jordan. Better versus performance, Gucci Mane or Jeezy? Whew. Gucci Mane. Better pizza, St. Louis or New York? 
St. Louis. But I fuck with New York too, though. Vincent Luque or Tyron Woodley? Tyron Woodley. There you go. You have completed the hustle round brought to you by Boston (laughs) Market. New Nashville hot chicken sandwich. I I, I really messed up on one. I wanted to say uh, money instead of fame because I really never got into it for the fame. And those are only two choices, but I would have said money. You're the first person who said fame, by the way, Tyron. I was like, I I literally was like, whoa. (laughs) Because I only had three seconds. I'm like, nah, because I really don't care about the fame. Yeah. By the but, way, I, was, I don't. I, I don't. I'm not, I'm not saying I don't care about the money. I do care about the money, but I care about the legacy more than anything. I was actually surprised you said St. Pierre over John Jones too. I couldn't believe that. Yeah, I made I, John Jones too. That it's quick, so they ain't gonna be accurate. John Jones is a, bit, a bigger specimen, especially when he's going up to heavyweight. He's jack right now. I've watched so many George St. Pierre fights. I think he's the most boring fighter. To watch, like it, it drives me nuts. He's too defensive. It depends on what version, you know. One thing that I can attest to, and I had long talks with George about this, is when you get there and the, and the pressure and the expectations and the belts on the line, and you got twenty dots on your body, and everybody want a piece of you. You know, you want to maintain that throne as long as you can, because I'll tell you, when I was a champion and nine champion, the exposure, the attention, the first class flights, the VIP, the money. The bonus, the, the bells and whistles are so different, and it's that quick. You lose on March 19th, March 20th, you back in coach. You back to this, and it is no transition. It's puke right there. So I think that he was protecting his legacy, one, um, but also sometimes you get accustomed to a certain type of living, and, um, you know, you got to maintain that. People are always going to say something regardless. When he took a time away and came back, we all forgot how boring y'all said he was. They was too busy talking about me. He came back and beat Bisming, and we forgot about all the fights that we thought him boring. But I think George St. Pierre was just a – he was a strategist, and some strategies aren't going to look good. But it was fights like John Fish fight or the Carl Parisian fight or some other fights where he looked amazing. I mean, he still is top five overall for ground and pound. I mean, he had that swimmer's bill. He can create space, posture up, and lay crazy punches. His cardio was crazy. And um, he just understood the rounds. I mean, he – he had a moment where he was kind of doing what I was doing, right? He lost to Matt Serra, but he bounced back. He was really given a chance to bounce back, you know what I mean? Um, he bounced back, and he got back on the top, and I think that really showed people who he really was. And that's probably why he's the best welterweight now, because he did that. Had he played every fight safe and everything was a close decision, we would have never regarded him the way that we do, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I never thought he was boring, but, like, he got so much slack from so many people. Like, they expect you to go into somebody's fucking spider web. They don't make no sense. They don't make no sense to slug it out with fucking Johnny Hendricks or fucking, you know what I mean, stay out in the open with Carlos Condon and Dan Hardy when you know they can't wrestle. Like, it would make no sense for you not to do that, you know? Tyron, you've been amazing, man. Thank you so much. That was incredible candor. Thanks for a great, great chat, man. Oh, no worries, man. I appreciate you guys. We got to get you out on the morning wood show with these nuts. Oh, Anytime, absolutely. Man. Good, luck. Good, luck at <laughs> Good luck at 260, man. Uh, thank you. All right, folks. That was five-time UFC welterweight champion Tyron Woodley. He was such a great analyst for the UFC, and to hear him break down the Khabib goat debate, the Conor McGregor media machine conversation, And then just 
the analysis of every single fighter and fight that either he's gone through or witnessed, I felt like we were dealing with a UFC encyclopedia. That's a very good way to put it. Yeah, he knew his sport through and through. And he was, you know, he's been behind the desk for quite some time. And uh, he was like the energizer bunny. You ask him a question, you wind him up, and then you just you just let him do the rest. I mean, he made our jobs very easy. And uh, hopefully this was as entertaining for our fans out there as it was for us. And we now know that he has a bunch of Rolex watches as an investment. So, <laughs> hey, Tyron, anytime you want to adopt... Two young men, Matt and I are available. We're in. <laughs> That's the truth. All right. This next guest here, I was extraordinarily happy to talk to because as a Patriots fan, I don't know if there's anybody in the history of the franchise who has been done dirtier than Mr. Jamie Collins. I mean, he's now a Detroit Lions linebacker, but in 2016, after a Super Bowl in a Pro Bowl season, the Patriots just middle of the season up and traded them, not to Green Bay, not to Seattle, Arthur, but to Cleveland. And this was great to hear his, his stance on the Patriot way, the Patriot organization, and kind of getting, getting done dirty like that. Note to self, do not piss off Bill Belichick ever because he don't play. Bill Belichick don't play. Speaking of another guy who doesn't play, we're coming off Tom Brady's seventh Super Bowl. And to hear Jamie Collins talk about the inside workings of, first of all, who Brady is like as a person off the field, but also what it was like witnessing the Tom Brady-Bill Belichick relationship during the heyday of the Pats dynasty and how Belichick didn't even treat Brady differently, that blew my mind because we all know about superstar treatment. But the fact that Belichick would like, rail into Tom Brady in front of the whole team and the way Jamie described it I was like wow no wonder Tom Brady fled to Tampa he just got like tired of getting railed on after like six Super Bowls yeah I mean that's what we asked him too the Patriots are probably going to hit a little slide here and will that will the Patriots way in the kind of all business no fun will that still be tolerated when a Super Bowl isn't guaranteed and we got his take on that, and I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, it's also fascinating because we talked to him before the Matt Stafford trade, the big blockbuster. For those who aren't aware of this blockbuster trade, I mean, it was all over the news, but the Detroit Lions traded their franchise quarterback, Matt Stafford, to the Rams. They got Jared Goff and a bunch of picks back. But we talked to Jamie Collins as the Stafford rumors were heating up, and to hear him talk about essentially the mindset of what Stafford was going through and why he had asked for a trade or a release was incredible. And then to see it actually go down a few days later was just super cool. So yeah, Jamie Collins, incredibly open guy. You know, these players, Matt, we talk about it all the time. And I, I say this, I feel like on every single show, you and I do have a really great ability of getting them to be comfortable and talk about stuff that they're not going to talk about in a press room. And I really felt like with Jamie Collins, we got so much of the inside scoop on winning cultures versus losing cultures from an active player. And he was so brutally honest about it. I was riveted by hearing everything he was saying. Yep. That's a mutual pat on the back for me and Arthur. So without further ado, here is Detroit Lions linebacker and Super Bowl champion, Jamie Collins. We are thrilled to have on today Pro Bowler, Super Bowl champion, 
in Detroit Lions linebacker Jamie Collins. Jamie, what's going on, man? Oh, man, I'm good, man. Blessed. Very blessed. Good. Where does this podcast find you? You're not in Detroit, are you? No, nah, I'm, uh, I'm in Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah, I was going to say Detroit year-round, man. That's a brutal, especially this time of year. Yeah, but I don't know, man. It's kind of the weather pretty bad everywhere, so it's kind of yeah, chilly. You know, I'm in Boston right now. We're get we get about 12 inches of snow, so you know it could always be worse. You're right about this, so I can't complain. That's why I can't complain. I feel you. All right, let's dive right into it here. You know, last year you signed a three-year deal with the Lions, reuniting with Matt Patricia, of course. You guys didn't have the season you would have liked, but how's it been adjusting to a new team? How how difficult it is to learn new schemes, build new relationships with teammates on top of moving your entire family to a city you probably never moved to otherwise. It's it's very difficult, man. Um, but I guess it's it's just part of the process, you know. It's part of the business, it's part of the job. It's just something that comes along with you know what we do. And um, the best thing about it is you meet new friends. You know what I'm saying? You meet a lot of people, new people, people that you know elevate you more and more. Uh, you never know who you might run into. And I say that's that's probably like the biggest thing, you know, that comes out of that. It's like I said, just meeting new people, man, you know, keeping yourself, you know, attached to, to different things, to new things, not just staying located in one spot, you know, getting tired of something, you know, we can get we get tired of stuff so fast. So it's it's cool, man. You know, I'm I'm not complaining. I'm not the one to complain about stuff like that. I didn't dealt with it before. You know, this ain't my first time, you know, being shipped off. So it was it was it was cool. I've always been curious about this. Do team hire staffers who take care of the logistics of a player getting traded? Because like hiring movers, finding a new home, that has to be such a drag on starting a new job somewhere else. Yeah, it is, but um it all depends on you and you know the people that you got working for you or with you or whatever, you know, it's just, you know, they they give their, you know, their people, they give their their insight on it. You know, they put people out there, obviously, you know, you got to give a little resources here and there, but it depends on you and, you know, what you want to do, your lifestyle, how you want to live it. So, yeah, they definitely do all that, man. It's, that's, you know, that's, it's pretty cool, you know, instead of just throwing you away, you know, and not giving you no type of, you know, resources. So it's it's, it's all right. It's not all the way bad. Jamie, let's talk about one of the best parts of Detroit, Detroit pizza. Have you discovered Detroit pizza? Yeah, I, I had the uh, Chicago pizza too, but I don't think nothing beating that. <laughs> Wait, you're taking Chicago over Detroit? Yeah, I think that pizza is, is better. I got, I give it to them. I give it to that. But Detroit, you know, they got some, they got some good stuff out there. Now, it kind of remind me of home, you know, like as far as the food, you know, from being from the South, you know, from Mississippi, you know, Detroit got some pretty good food you know, all around, not just the pizza, but all around. So they, they definitely got some good stuff out there to put in your soul. What was it like? You come out of Mississippi, you play college ball down there, then Belichick and the Pats end up drafting you. That's like going to a whole different universe, different part of the country. It's like going to, you know, Alaska. What was yeah. that transition like in the beginning for you? Man, it was it was crazy. I, I had no idea. And the crazy thing is... <laughs> Like most of my family was saying I was going to go somewhere like that, like cold, far away. And I'm just like, no, I'm not going nowhere. Like I'm going to be right here somewhere. But I ended up getting drafted by them, like you said, and it was it just blew me away, man. And because growing up, I never was like a sports person. I never really just 
sat down as a young kid and was just watching football and basketball like that. So all I heard about was Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, you know, Peyton Manning, Adrian James, Marvin Harrison, you know, those type of guys. And I never really just thought about me being in New England, you know, and the tradition that they had there when I got there, I felt everything, you know, it was everything that my folks talked about and it just blew me away. And I was just, I was just so grateful, you know, it was just something I definitely didn't, you know, take for granted. When you walk in the room for the first time and the goat, and he was already the goat at that point, yeah, <laughs> is right in front of you. Yeah. How do you not get starstruck? Like, what's the reaction? Obviously, you got to be a pro, but also Tom effing Brady is right in front of you. So when I first got there, it was, I was different. You know, I was just, I always thought guys like that was like big headed, you know? So it was like, I just looked at him like, he probably think he's the shit, you know? You know, he probably, you know, thinks he's above everybody. That's just, that was my mindset at the time, but that was just me judging him, you know? Everybody judged somebody every now and then, but I had, I made a big mistake because once I started talking to him and getting to know him, I was like, his career shows, you know, this, this dude really is one of the greatest guys in the world. Like his talents really shows that. And I was just blown away because I thought he was just some stuck up guy, you know, some big headed guy that thought he knew everything, which turned out to be completely wrong, you know, but I'm so glad I got to know him. And like, even to this day, man, like me and Tom, you know, we still text from time to time, you know, that's, that's the type of person he is, you know, he ain't one of those type of guys. And, I appreciate it. And like I said, we always, you know, text her and now and then. It's, it's, it's super cool, man. It's super dope, you know, to be in contact with a guy like that. Because like you said, he's like the greatest quarterback to play the game. Is it true that he would keep, you know, he would get to know even like the practice players and like their their families and all that is he would put in effort to the guys one through 54 on the roster, right? Oh, yeah, no, no one got treated special, you know, with him, man. It's and like I said, it, that's what makes him so great, you know, because you think of just about it being about football when, you know, he's the top tier guy on defense to, you know, the practice squad guy or anybody on the staff, you know, the, the, in the janitor area, janitorial, whatever. You know, he's treating everybody the same, you know, no one gets spe special treatment. And like I said, that's what blew me away, you know, because I'm thinking this guy, you know, he's on top of the world. You know, he don't have a reason to be talking to, you know, janitors or anybody in that nature. And he is, you know, he's all in the practice squad, you know, jokes around. He's he comes around and sit at the table with you, joke around with you, whatever. You know, he just he just blends right in. You know, I want to take you back to 2016. One of the most iconic games in NFL history. I remember where I was when I was watching it. I remember thinking you guys were dead in the water and you end up pulling the biggest comeback off in Super Bowl history. Walk me through as that's happening. What the heck is going on on the sidelines? What's the mindset? So I had got traded. I was traded and I was, you know, I was watching that game like, you know, I didn't blink, man, because being in that organization, knowing Bill Belichick, knowing who his quarterback was, it wasn't a doubt in my mind that those guys didn't have a chance to win. Like, I wish I could have been there, but like I said, that was around the time that I got traded and I was, I was hurt, you know, but at the end of the day, I put in over half a season there. So, you know, I was blessed, you know, to get that ring, 
you know, so that made me a two-time Super Bowl champ. But I just wish I would have been there with those guys, man, because I know, like, there's never a doubt, you know, in my mind when Tom Brady's your quarterback that you're out of the game until the clock says zero. I actually thought you were on the team at that moment. I totally forgot that they had traded you at that point. Yeah. Yeah. What is it about both him and that team? Like you obviously are talking about the confidence that you knew was there, but what is it like on the sidelines with someone like Brady and Belichick and that whole team when they're in that situation that allows them to excel that you feel that confident? Man, they, they composure, their body language, you know, their, their swagger, their killer instinct, their mindset, you know, it's just, it's never a doubt, man. You know, like, it's the NFL, you know, it's up and down, you know, it's it's a game of leagues, it's a game of changes, it's a game of momentum. We're all individuals, you know, it's just it's just about keep keep going, man, because it don't it don't get no better than, you know, a game like that. It don't get no better than being pushed up against the wall, you know, and, and like I said, that's what brings out the best in everybody, you know, when you're back against the wall and those guys have proven it. You know, they've proven it over the years. You know, this it ain't nothing new to them. So, you know, like I said, I felt it. You know, I felt it my whole career there. You know, it's just no matter what game it is, if we blowing somebody out, it's still the same, you know, and we've done that before. And we'll get, you know, back in the locker room on Monday and we felt like we lost, you know, and we just blew somebody out. But that's just – that was the, the standard, you know. It wasn't – you know, you enjoy it, but, like, at the end of the day, you know, like, we still got to get better. You know, we still got stuff to work on and move on to the next. You know, when he says on to the next, he really mean on to the next, you know, because that's the game, you know, and that's the that's the mentality, that's the mindset, and that's the killer part about it, man. And that's, that helps me – it helped me so much, you know, because I wasn't driven like that, you know. I wasn't driven like that, you know, growing up. Looking at game, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna appreciate my win, you know. But when they keep coming, like I'm going out in Mississippi, I'm having a good time. You know what I mean? So when they come in every week, you know, it's like he ready. You know, he's really on to the next. Artie, I think you were mistaken because he Jamie should have been in that Super Bowl, but you were in Super Bowl 49, the Malcolm Butler interception yeah. at the goal line. Yeah. Uh, can you take us through the emotions there? You know, they have Marshawn Lynch. You guys, were you guys feeling defeated on, on that defense at all? Or what, what was what was going on there? Wow, Max. So if you if you really think about it, man, we, you know, I would say we was in control of the game. You know, we came out firing on all cylinders, man. It was it was a pretty good, intense game. And like I said, we never blinked. They decided to throw the ball, you know, and that's you gotta think like, why did they throw the ball? You know, and it all comes back on what everybody rely on the most, and that's numbers. You know what I mean? So that's that was the statistic, and then they threw it and they messed up. But uh we won the game, you know. At the end of the day, we won the game. So it really didn't matter, you know what I mean? Cause we already had that in our instilled in us, you know, like I said, that, that killer mindset, you know, stand poised, never blinking, never looking down, just straight up. And that's what it was, you know, cause at the end of the day, either play scores, you know, a run or a pass can score. Like, right. like you can look at the last fourth and ones the Kansas city been doing, you know, throughout these playoffs, you know, they've been throwing the ball. They're not running, you know what I mean? So it don't matter if you run or throw. It's the possibility of a score or not a score. So it is what it is. Yeah, I think that was a 
the Falcons one was great, but I think that was the greatest sports moment for me as a fan, maybe ever. And I've been watching football for like 15, 20 years now. And one but, guy to come in and do something like that, you know, like. <laughs> I mean, especially Malcolm Butler, didn't they, they plucked him out of a Popeye's gig. Like, I'm sorry guys. I just vomited him. in my mouth listening to that. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's like crying the, the, like the slow-mo of him crying and everybody's huddling around him. It, like I still get goosebumps but from You got to understand where we come from, man. It's, it's, it's not easy coming out of Mississippi, man. Like it just, it don't work like that, you know? So when, when you come out of places like that, it's like every moment is big. Like every moment is big. And like I said, it's just, when I first got to the NFL, I was strictly business. Like it was all ready. Like I'm always on the go. Like I never appreciated the fruits of labor of the NFL because I just felt like me being out of Mississippi, like that I had, I had shit to prove, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like I can just slack up and do this and do this. So that's why like, I never really celebrated after no big plays when I first got in the NFL, not even really my second year when we went to the Super Bowl, you know? So it was like, I always felt like I had something to prove because coming out of places like Mississippi, you know what I mean? But once I got in the league and I started realizing, like, you know, I love this game. It's fun. Like, you got to appreciate this shit. And that's what I started doing. So I started smiling a lot more, doing all type of other things. But I never let up. I never let up. It was just, like, about enjoying myself even more. You know what I'm saying? Because I never did that because of where we come from. And I felt him, you know, feeling like he felt, man, like that's the biggest game, you know, of the year. Like, that's what we all here for. Like, we play this game to go to the Super Bowl and to come in and do something like that as a young guy from Mississippi, like, that's that's huge. Like, it don't get no better than that, man. Like, I don't know, ain't nothing, it don't get better than that, period. Like, it doesn't. You'd mentioned the word business. And obviously, when you make it to the league, millions of dollars are coming at you, especially mm-hmm. when you're, a high first round or second round pick business is what you become. Right. I always love to know from players, what's the best piece of financial advice that you would give to a high draft pick coming into the league on how to best use and invest their money? Definitely that invest, but I would say, you know, like sit on it, like don't go out, you know, you, you gotta have fun. You know what I'm saying? We all gotta have fun. We all, we all as individuals deserve you know what I'm saying? To fulfill our happiness, you know, and don't want to stop nobody from doing that, but you definitely just can't abuse it. You know, I feel like that's the worst part of about anything is abusing it. You know, it's okay to do something a little bit, but once you start abusing it, that's when it becomes a problem. But I would just tell guys, man, to just hold on to it. Like don't be in a rush, you know, to, to spend and go crazy because you never know, you know what I'm saying? The next move, like, this game don't last forever. You know, you can get hurt or whatever. Anything can happen. But um, you definitely just want to sit on it and invest. Just keep good people in your corner. You know, keep the good people in your corner to look out for it. You know, got people that you trust or whatever, who, whoever, whatever. You know, it's just don't just jump off the boat and go to spending money, man. Like, because that's, that's, that's only going to last for so long. You know what I mean? Because once, once it starts slimming down, you know, it's just – it's, it's not a good look, you know, I, I get it. You know, I wasn't one, you know, I wasn't blessed like that growing up. So once I got a little money, it started burning my pocket too. And I was ready to come up off of it. So I get it, you know, but it's just about thinking like later down the road because who knows, man, like this, this, this game is tough, man. It don't last forever. 
What was the craziest purchase you made that if you could go back in time and not have made that purchase, you wouldn't have made it? I would say a piece of jewelry. You know, I uh, I did buy a, a, a Cuban link, a, a bracelet. Actually, it was an ankle bracelet. You know, I don't even wear it anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, it's just it was burning my pocket at the time, man. I, I had a little money saved up, you know, so I just wanted to bling out a little bit. And I bought it and I was like, and like I said, I don't even wear it no more. Like, I can't tell you the last time I even wore that thing, but it's definitely a lot of money I put into it. An ankle bracelet? I mean, of all things, like, I understand on your wrist, if you're going to do a necklace, can't even see it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, man. Like, I was just, I just felt like I was like, I got to spin it. But I don't, I'm not a big jewelry guy, though. For some reason, I just wanted to be different. You know, I, I haven't seen no ankle bracelets or nothing like that. I always see guys with bracelets on and necklaces. I don't even wear necklaces like that. I was just like, I'm just going to buy me a, a iced out Cuban ankle bracelet. And I did. What are you walking around with Crocs just so you can show it off? You know, <laughs> the $100,000 ankle bracelet. Barefooted. I'm out here barefooted. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine he walks into the Pat's locker room and Belichick's, they're probably in like film study and the hoodie is literally like, what the fuck is on your ankle right there, Jamie? Hey, definitely happened. Definitely happened a couple of times. It was definitely eye-catching and being in that building because Bill, he's, he's a different breed, but it was still cool though. You know, it's one of those moments. He's, he laughs. Let's put it like that. He laughs. The jewelry I never understood because I understand the cars and like practical things, but like, you have these guys like Gabriel the jeweler. They're selling like NFL athletes these like three hundred thousand dollar neck pieces. It's like you can get the same one, but it's fake for twenty five dollars. You know, and it's like it's still the clout. You still get the clout. I just don't understand. Exactly, it. and you already rich. You know what I mean? So that's why I really I haven't. I am not really a big jewelry guy because I just feel like you know why spend all your money on that stuff? You already rich. You know, you don't have to look it. You know, have you been to my house? Yeah, it's like. Yeah. <laughs> But like, I just, like I said, everybody got their own thing and that just wasn't one of my things. Like I do like to wear watches all the time. You know, I like a nice timepiece, but that's about it, man. Like I'm just not really crazy about jewelry because like I said, it's just, you can go buy a fake piece of jewelry that's, that looks good and it's going, it's going to do pretty much do the same thing. You know, it's just, it's just the mindset of knowing that it's fake. You know, I guess that's what it is. Like buy a fake Porsche. Yeah, fake Jordans or something. Yeah. You'd mentioned Belichick obviously being a different breed. He's probably the most mysterious figure in the NFL. And, and I think he plays it up, and I think he knows it. I think he loves it. What is he actually like behind the scenes? Ain't no behind the scenes. He's still he's the same guy. Like, you just got to pick your moments with him. Like, you know, like I said, with me coming in with an ankle bracelet, like, he'll grin and laugh. You know, but at the end of the day, he's like, like, really? Like, what the fuck is that? Like, <laughs> what do you get out of that? You know, but he's the, he's definitely the same guy. Like, ain't no faking it. You know, what you see is what you get. You know, and like I said, it's just about having your moments with him. You know, because when I first got to, in it, to, to New England, man, it was, I used to see him all the time. And never, he would never say nothing to me. Never like, and then one day he'll maybe say something, you know, he'll speak JC. I'd be like, Oh, what's up, coach? You know, like you finally spoke, but like at the end of the day, I knew it wasn't nothing, you know, it was just him, you know what I'm saying? So it's not like no hard feelings, it's just like 
You know, sometimes you got to respect the person for being them, and that's him. You know what I mean? And it's just about, like I said, picking when you can play with him and when you can't because you never know because he's always he's always got that Bill Belichick face, you know, and you don't know you don't know when to come up and play or when not to. So it's just about just having a feeling, a gut feeling, man, or whatever mood he in. But like I said, ain't no behind the scenes because he's always the same person. There's always the famous stories that come out of that locker room around even Tom Brady gets ripped by Belichick. Was there ever a moment that you're in the locker room and you saw Belichick either tear into Brady or another player that you were like, man, this is different. Like, I can't believe either the GOAT got ripped or like someone of that caliber by Belichick. Definitely, definitely. And we in the meeting room one day. <laughs> he ripped Tom so bad. Like, and this, I'm going to say Tom because it's Tom Brady. And I'm scared because I'm like, like, damn, like that could be me, you know, like. I'm not Tom Brady. No one in here is Tom Brady. He dropped a snap one day in practice. You know, he fumbled a snap under the center. Man, when I say that was the worst, like the worst day in that meeting room that morning. Like, we can't even fucking take the snap. The fucking QB exchange. The easiest. Like, it was, it was crazy. Like, he literally threw so many F-bombs. Like, and it was like, I'm in there like, Dang, coach, he just fumbled a snap in practice. Like, we can fix that. <laughs> like, that's nothing. But he really, like, crushed him. And I'm just like, sheesh, like, like that's Tom Brady. Like, this is something he do every day. You know, center quarterback has changed. Like, this stuff we do every day. Like, you do something every day, you know you're going to mess up, right? Like, I don't care if you're drinking water every day or whatever. Like, a little bit going to run down your mouth. If you do something literally every day, all day, you're going to mess it up. But it's no room. It was no room for error that day. I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I been not miss a tackle. I been not show up late. I been not do nothing. I'm trying to – I'm A1. I'm trying to be pinpoint on everything I do. I'm like, sheesh, I was so scared. But that's him, you know. Like, no one's safe when it comes to, to Bill, man. And that's what makes him great. You know what I'm saying? Like, He's going to hold you to a standard. You know, you just got to take it, you know, take it for what it's worth, use it to your advantage, man, and elevate. Because it's not like he's trying to put you down or whatever, you know. It's just trying to build character, you know, build your game up, you know, and it's up to you how you take it, you know. And obviously this man took it and ran with it, you know, <laughs> look at him. So. Can we talk about Brady's celebration videos on Instagram? <laughs> Him and Gronk recreating the famous celebration from a couple of years ago. Do you guys just chuckle when you see that stuff? I definitely, man. It's it's definitely some inside stuff. But you, like I said, it's you don't have to. You don't even have to be around to 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 chuckle or, or know. You just like you just have a feeling. But like us that know, we just we just laugh and be like, here you go, like. I'm pretty sure that was directed at the hoodie, by the way. I'm pretty sure if he could, you know how you can tag people on Instagram? I'm pretty yeah. sure if he could have tagged Belichick in there, it would have been like at B Belichick. The crazy thing is, once again, that shows what type of guy Tom is. You know what I'm saying? Like, he a great guy, man. He funny as hell. Like, you just got to have a conversation with him. Like, a lot of people might think he's on top of the world or whatever, but he's still like a regular dude. You know, he's still a regular dude, man. It's, he got a sense of humor, and that shit shows. Like, it's funny. 
you know, because like I said, it's very rare to meet people like that, you know? I want to talk a little bit about, and I'm sorry for talking about your ex, but I'm a Boston guy, so I can't help it. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the Patriot way. I know Lane Johnson a couple of years ago said it didn't look like the Patriots players were having any fun under Belichick. Former Patriot Cassius Marr said something similar. For someone who's played for three different franchises like yourself, how enjoyable is playing in New England? And two, do you think that if the Patriots go on a little slide, like they had a bad season this year, do you think that players will be less willing to kind of give into the Patriots way without a guaranteed Super Bowl like they've had the past 20 years? So my thing, my thing, you know, this is just this me. That's anywhere, wherever you go, whatever you do, you know, there's always going to be restrictions. You know, it's always going to be discipline, but you just got to find your own way of enjoying yourself, you know? Like, yeah, like no one is going to let you into their home, you know, and just let you go crazy. You know, it's just, it doesn't work like that, you know, no matter what. But yeah, it was different. You know, it was definitely different. You know, I know a, like a couple of teams I went to, like Cleveland uh, and Detroit, like you can go in there and have fun, you know, but in New England, it's like, it's strictly business. It's definitely not the type of place that a fun world that you expect to go into and just be lollygagging all the time, you know, like, but some guys do have fun. Like I, I was having fun. I started having fun. High Tower, you know, a lot of us started having fun around there. Like, it depends on who you are. It depends on your personality, what you do to stay sane, you know, because it's all business, man. And sometimes you got to loosen up and do what you got to do, you know, to survive in a place like that, man. And if you let something like that hold you down, then obviously it's going to tear you apart. And like you said, my, the, the, my Cassius or whatever, like, he probably felt like, you know, he was, I don't know, just trying to do the right thing, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, he's a he's a human, you know, and he got to he got to let off, you know, his his inner self, you know, as far as like just being happy, you know, because you got to enjoy the game. You know, this this shit tough, you know, you can't be on edge all the time. You know, that that kills. And I feel like if you don't enjoy it, then you might as well just hang it up because it's, it's going to be times in here, you know, that's that's really rough. And in New England, it's really rough. But you got to embrace it, you know, because, you know, it's going to be some good coming out of it. And those guys losing last year, like the season they had, like I'm pretty sure that's not going to stop anything as long as they got Bill over there, you know, and boss man. You know, they got Mr. Kraft, too. You know, he's a great guy, too. You know, so as long as they got those those guys over there, man, leading them, I don't think that that there's not a doubt in my mind, like I said, that they're going to just be willing to cut out, you know, just because they're losing or whatever. Like, I just, I don't see that. In what ways is it rougher in New England? Is it, is it just the, the overall attitude? Is it more meetings or is it, you know, more discipline? Like what ways is it different from Cleveland or say a Detroit? I would say the attitude, the meetings, the discipline, the thought of having an imprint on them as far as Bill Belichick and Mr. Kraft. It's Bill Belichick, you know, he's been doing this forever, you know, as far as his name being what it is. And it's just a it's a, it's a respect thing because when you go to other places, these guys, you know, they're they just got there. They're new. They haven't been there long. They don't really have an imprint on the organization as if a Bill Belichick, you know, in this league. So I just feel like it's more of a respect thing, you know, when it comes to stuff like that and the feeling and that you have when you go into a situation or a job, you know, when you when you meet a guy like Bill Belichick versus 
meeting a Matt Patricia that's new to a Detroit Lions team. You know what I mean? You know, it's just different. It's a different respect level. And I feel like that's what carries it more. We're living through a period of player empowerment, Jamie, unlike anything we've ever seen before. In the NBA, you saw it with James Harden this year. He decided to go party in strip clubs to get traded and gained a thousand pounds. And then all of a sudden lost it like two days later. I'm pretty sure he's wearing a fat suit. But (laughs) we're also seeing it in the NFL. Obviously, it's no secret. Deshaun Watson decided he was going to ask for a trade. What do you think about this period of player empowerment and players essentially saying, look, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't care if I'm under contract. Get me the heck out of here. These guys coming to the realization, man, that, you know, it is a player's league. We do a lot of stuff, you know, it's like, and like I said, it's really, it's a respect thing, man. Like, you know, we've always just came in and did what we had to do, you know, for the sake of the game that we love. And for the people that got us here, you know, that brought us in and gave us the opportunity, you know, we're going to always appreciate and thank them. But at the end of the day, man, it's it's about it's about yourself. You know, it's about you, you know, your health, you know, your your mental, you know, because you got to have a membrane. You know, you got to take care of that. But guys really just, you know, stepping out on the limb, you know, because it's a player's league. It's definitely a player's league. And. These guys getting fed up, man. You know, no no one wants to be set up for failure. You know, like they just want to be put in the best position, you know, to succeed and win. You know, because this game, like I said, it's tough, man. And when you like losing all the time, with it being tough, that it's draining, man. That shit hurts. You know, like I'm in here, I'm busting my ass every day for nothing. You know, like it's not really for nothing, but to me, it's nothing. Like. I'm not getting nothing out of it like I want to win. You know, I want to be on a big stage. I want to play for something. I don't want to play for them. You know, yeah, young guys come in and maybe want to play for themselves or whatever. But at the end of the day, man, like when you when you start getting older and this, like you you want to win. You know, you see all these older guys that haven't won anything end up in New England or something like that because they want to win. You know what I mean? Like They want the ring. Yeah, like that's that's just what it is because all that individualism, man, like it's cool and all, but that's not really the way, you know, that's that that's that's up, you know. But I remember when uh Reggie Wayne came to New England, man, <laughs> and Bill had him playing in preseason, man, like it was bad. Like this man, a beast, you know, he's a beast receiver, like and he a veteran, you know, and he came over there, you know, thinking thinking everything was good. And this Bill had this man playing in the fourth preseason game. He was blown away. I was like, we was in the sauna. It was me, him, and Brandon Bolden. We was in the sauna talking about it. And I was just like, bro, you just got to expect the unexpected. Like, this Bill Belichick. Like, you just got here too. Like, Tom Brady don't get special treatments like that either. Like, you know, like, you got to prove yourself. <laughs> like, you don't care. But, like, that's the thing. Like, he came over there to win, you know? That's what happens when you get older. You just want to win. Like the individual accomplishments, you know, that's it means a lot, but it don't really mean nothing. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Reggie Wayne, a potential Hall of Fame wide receiver. Yeah. Belichick had him out in the fourth preseason game yeah. with the scrubs. No yeah. offense, not scrubs. All yeah. those guys would kick the shit out of me. Yeah. But but like young guys, you know, that's trying to make the team. Like, yes, it was it was weird. We were so weird, but like I said, it it didn't surprise me at all because, like I said, with Bill, man, just expect the unexpected. I wouldn't be surprised if he called him by the wrong name. Uh, Ricky Wayne, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what, dude? I'm like a legend. 
<laughs> He's like, do you know how many receptions I have? Yeah, it's weird, man. But it's definitely been different. You know, even like playing with guys like that, like playing with AP, you know, last year, yeah. Agent Peterson, like, damn, like I I this stuff that I that never, you know, crossed my, you know, my sight, you know, seeing stuff like that. I'm just like like, damn, like this Asia Peterson right here, you know what I'm saying? Like he's definitely a Hall of Famer. I know he's going in there. Like if, if not, then there's something up with that. But he's a Hall of Famer. Just playing with guys like that, I'm just like, damn, like I done played with some play with some pretty good people, man. Like Will Fork, Mayo, Spikes, like those guys, man. I don't know. Like it's just I've been blessed, you know, and that's why I feel like, you know, my mental is is okay. I ain't gonna say it's strong, I mean, but it's okay because I had a lot of you know, guys to talk to and look up to, you know, playing the game. So it's definitely been a blessing, man, being in all those places. Because like I said, no matter where you go, you just got to take advantage of it. And I try to soak every, I try to soak it all up. You know, even being in Cleveland, losing, you know, I just, it is what it is, you know, because you learn something during any time, you know. I don't care, like, yeah, it's COVID season right now. We, we stuck in the house. But still, like, we learning something, you know. We still learning. Even though we're not outside, we learning about outside. I guarantee you that. We going to learn something through anything, you know, and that's what I try to do. I just try to soak it all up. I want to talk to you about Stafford because he's one of my favorite players in the league. I think he's one of the most underrated quarterbacks, and he's one of those guys that because of the situation and the record that he's had to deal with is probably so underappreciated. And there was a great quote from Aaron Rodgers recently where he really praised Matt Stafford and said he's pretty much on the same skill level as as him. Yeah, he just don't have the wins. He just yeah, talk to wins. me about Stafford. Like, what's he like? I Obviously, seeing him with his wife and the brain cancer thing and the brain tumor thing was incredible. But what's he like behind the scenes? He's super cool, man. He, like I said, he's one of those guys. He's interacting. You know, he's, he's a gunslinger. He's a leader. He's doing whatever he got to do to help his team. You know, he he has a lot of input. He's smart as hell. I don't know, a lot of guys look up to him because he's been doing it for so long and he's sustaining his his numbers. You know, just look at his numbers, man. He has the numbers, you know, but like I said, the only thing he doesn't have is the wins, you know, and I feel like that's what hurts. You know, even though, even though you had the numbers, you got to win to get recognition. He's been going up against Aaron Rodgers. They're in the, you know, we're in the same division, you know, but no one looks at him because Aaron Rodgers is winning, but his numbers is is up there. You know, his numbers is not, he don't have Rudy Poo numbers. Like his numbers are not sorry, <laughs> you know, but we don't, we don't pay attention to that because he comes out in the L column, you know, and I just feel like that's, that's the reason why he's, you know, trying to get out, you know, he's trying to go somewhere and win because like I said, he's getting, he's, he's a veteran in the game and he's been losing his whole career. So it's about time that him, to try to find a place to go somewhere and win, you know, because that's what's going to get him over the top. You know, once he start winning, now he's going to get the recognition he needs. He just can't get it in a place like Detroit where he was because they've been losing for so long, you know? There's always this incredible conversation about what they call arm talent. You know, you hear Mahomes, you hear Rodgers, Stafford's got an absolute rifle, yeah, and he throws sidearm. He throws sidearm all the time. You see it in games when he throws balls. It depends on where's the defender and all this. He throws sidearm. He does all of that. But you don't see that because he's not winning. The highlights are not there. We're not on national TV, you know, stuff like that. So he definitely has all that. He's he's a gunslinger now. He's definitely a gunslinger. 
Who's got the sickest arm you've ever seen? Man, Tom Brady in his he's 43, man, and he's gunning that thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he looks great. Yeah, but he can't he can't throw like Mahomes and Rod. I mean, Rogers throws like the guy's doing ballet dances and throwing 99 per hour fastballs. Rogers, Rogers is tough now. Rogers is tough, but you gotta think. He got he got number one receiver over there. <laughs> he throwing to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but Tom is 43, man. Like, like it's a toss-up between him and Aaron Rodgers, because Aaron Rodgers, he's throwing that thing on the run. Like you said, like he can throw on the run. Like I Mahomes, he Mahomes is good, but I just feel like it's still early, you know? Like it's still early. But Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, these guys are putting in a lot of work. You know, they playing at a high level and consistent level. You know, they they're super consistent with theirs. You know, Mahomes definitely there already, but he still got years to go to catch these guys. But I'm just I'll have to say I will have to say Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, man, but I'm gonna lean on my man Tom for sure. Yeah, I may be biased, but I don't think Aaron Rodgers could make Julian Edelman a near Hall of Famer. That's just my opinion, though. You know, everyone's always like, Aaron Rodgers, he's got a great arm. It's like, yeah. He also throwing a Devontae Adams, too. So, yes, you know, I'm just saying, like, Tom's is doing that, man. Like, Tom's not doing this with number one receivers. That's my thing. He has good receivers, but if you, like you said, like, Matt Stafford not getting, like, Tom receivers is not getting. I mean, Matt had Megatron, who's arguably, I mean, he's top five, <laughs> top 10 of all time. That dude was. And he retired at 30. Detroit's got Detroit's the king city of the guys who retired 30 years old and are all time greats. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. He definitely, I, you know, people look over that too, you know, like one of the greatest duos, but it's not like they're not getting that, you know, people they didn't even, I think they just started talking about Megatron, man. People wasn't talking about Megatron. People weren't talking about Calvin Johnson. Like, they was not talking about him. They just started talking about him. I'm like, what do I, like, do y'all not know? Like, this man was a beast. Like, this man was literally a beast out here. Big, he big as shit, doing whatever he wanted to do. When we played them, when we played them, I was like, I did not know he was that big. I was just, like I said, blown away. I'm not big in it, but like reading the scouting report is different than getting on the field when you see somebody on the field. You know, it's like, He's fast. His his sky reports say he's a he's a four six, but he ain't, you know, that ain't nothing. Then when you get out there, he's four five, four four. You know what I'm saying? It's like sky report is different than when you're on the field. And like <laughs> seeing him out there, I was like, oh yeah, he he's a monster. And I see why they call him Megatron. Who's the most imposing athlete you've ever seen on a field? Obviously, DK right now is kind of that dude where people are like, holy shit, this guy's from a different planet. But who's the one you've seen up close that you've just been like, this dude's from another universe? Tariq Hill playing against him. Le'Veon a beast. When I when we played him a couple of times in my early years, he was a beast. Love playing against Marshawn Lynch. Was he that tough to bring down? It's so hard for us, you know, casual six one, six two guys to understand what it's like to tackle a beast beast mode. But like, yeah, what's he like to actually hit? So Marshawn, the thing with Marshawn, man, I don't know how to say it, but like he gets it. You know, it's a lot of guys in the NFL that don't get it. You know, they they don't use their strengths. You know, they don't know their strengths. They don't know how to tap into it. But Marshawn gets it. You know, he knows because. You know, his upbringing, his livelihood, you know, his lifestyle, 
that's why he gets it. But like, it's not a lot of guys that literally gets it. When you think about it, guys don't really break through until a couple of years later because they didn't get it. You know, even me, like, I didn't get it at first either. But now, you know, I get it. Like, guys literally start to take over the game. You know, like, they can literally take over a game if they really wanted to. You see Tariq Hill now, like, he literally was taking over the Buffalo game, you know, just cutting back, playing with people, spending, doing it. Like, you have to tap into yourself. Like, that comes from – it comes from playing, you know, but – also, it, that's, that, it comes from within, like, oh, yeah, like, if I know you can't beat me, you're not going to beat me. Like, I'm going to play with you. Like, it's just like, if I say you're not tackling me, you're not going to tackle me. He can do that. Tariq Hill can do that. Like, like he can It's all that. mental. You're yeah, saying it's just as much yeah, mental as physical. Tapping into yourself, like, he he's the type of person, you know, that can do stuff like that. And Marshawn Lynch was definitely one of those guys, like, Bro, one dude not finna bring me down. Like, like literally, he's one dude. Like, and that's how I was. I, that's how I was in high school. So I played quarterback, and it was like one one dude wasn't finna tackle me. You know, like period. One dude, I can I can't remember one or two times one dude tackled me in high school. You were what? You're six five. What two? Right now, I'm six four two sixty. Jesus. In high school, I was I was like 200 pounds. I was like 6'1", 6'2", 200. I was, I was really like 190. You know, I just say 200. When I played high school basketball, I was, I'm, I'm 6'1 and three quarters. I, they would list me at 6'4", and then I'd show up for recruiting trips, and the coaches would be like, where's the dude that was supposed to show up? 6'4", <laughs> that's like a full three inches, dude. I would show up, and they'd be like, what the heck is going on? It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really – I hit a growth spurt, man. I, I just – I blew up. I literally blew up because I, I went to college. I was like 210, 212, and I was the safety. I went, I was played safety. But I got bigger every year, and I ended up playing defensive end my senior year. True 4-3, hand in the dirt, defensive end. <laughs> and I got drafted as a linebacker. I just – I don't know. I just kept getting bigger, man. It was – everybody in my family is big. You know, I was the smallest one. You know, I was the last one. So it was crazy. You've been all around the positions here. Yeah, I played a lot of positions, man. I, I think that's one of my skills, one of my special skills that I have, you know, for the game because I've played a lot of positions. So it really helps me a lot, you know, even play, from playing quarterback, you know, I see the offense different, you know, as well. And like I said, it's definitely a gift, man, that I really appreciate because everybody don't have that. You know, we got, you know, you got some guys that have been playing one position their whole career, their whole life. You know, but I've been playing multiple positions. So I think I know that that's definitely one of my gifts that helps me a lot in this game, just by playing all that. We had Deshaun Jackson on the show last week, and he talked about the moment and what he felt when the Eagles released him in 2013 because he was so attached to the city, so attached to the franchise. He kind of had his off-the-field issues, and they had to ship him out. And he talked about how much emotionally it affected him. What was it like? Because you are a homegrown Pat's talent. We know this is a business, but when that moment happens and you have to leave, what is that like for a player? And what was it like for you? I was, I was hurt. <laughs> you know, I try to be tough about it. I try to get this. I try to get it. I try to understand the situation, but 
I was just, I was blown away. I went into Cleveland with a different mindset. You know, I was I was faking it for so long, but it just, it kept catching up with me because I was trying to bury it, but it helped me, you know, it really, it molded me, you know, it gave me the opportunities, you know, and I gave it a lot, you know, but when it happened, I was just, I don't know, I was, I was speechless. I didn't know, I didn't know what to tell people. I didn't know how to tell people, you know, that's why I was, you know, so quiet, you know, guys, they, everybody talking about, oh, he asking for Von Miller money, this. I'm like, I didn't ask for no Von Miller money, but I'm that, I'm not the type of person to go back and forth with nobody. You know, I'm going to let you think what you want to think. You know, you, people going to do that anyway, so to hell with it. Colin Howard theorized that it was because you'd rather play video games than watch football and you couldn't match Belichick's passion. Is there any substance to that? Or that sounded like bullshit at the time. And it I don't even play video games. <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking douche. <laughs> How does this shit happen? Like, when you guys see this in the press, like... You know, they, they create stories. You know, guys, the people create stories all the time. But like I said, I'm not the one to just go back and forth with stuff like that because I'm good. You know, I don't want to be going back and forth arguing with you about something you don't know shit about. You don't know, you don't even really care, you know, but I was just, you know, I just, I just let it be, but like, I'm like Chandler Jones and Ann Dotson, like these guys trying to start, uh, get me to play video games. Like I'm not, I don't play no damn video game. <laughs> I barely can use the controller. Like I don't even, I can't tell you the last, last video game I was playing was damn, Nintendo 64 or something. I'm going to write a strongly worded email to Colin. Believe me, I'm going to, I'm going to fight, fight for you, JC. Man, it's crazy. But like I said, I just I just read it. I just, you know, I look at it. I get mad, but I just laugh too, you know, because I'm like, they really don't know. Like, I don't even play video games. Like, and I'm like, Von Miller money. I'm not even Von Miller. Like, that ain't even me. All my people knew that, though. Like, the people that know me, like my friends and this, like, they know that thing. Like, yeah, bro. We know that ain't you asking for that. We know, you know what I'm saying? Like everybody in my corner knew that, you know, but it's it's cool though, because like I said, like just like you know, it it, it makes me or breaks me, man. You know, like it is what it is. Like, oh, you win, you got it. You know, I ain't the one that try to big up nobody, man. I ain't here to big up nobody. You know, I'm just trying to be great in my own way. You know, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to make it in something special as a linebacker, like for an organization. I'm not trying to win a fan or whatever over that story is just gonna help me you know it's just gonna help my story you know that story gonna help my story for when i do become great you know but yeah it's crazy man all these rumors it's funny jamie when was the exact moment like the exact moment that you knew you were gonna make it to the nfl i think it was like my junior year man like I was projected to come out my junior year, but I didn't, you know, I, I, I decided to stay. And I was like, man, bro, like I can go to the league. Like, like I really wanted to, you know, I wanted to go get that money. I really did. But I was just like, I'm having too much fun in college. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to graduate and do this and that. The Lord say the same, you know, I can I can still go next year. You know, I go my senior year, but I was blown away when they started talking about NFL. Like when I started getting like calls, recruits, getting hit up, that's when I think, Oh yeah, everybody was telling me I, I wasn't on social media. I had just created a social media account for like agents and stuff like that. And I was getting hit up a lot. And I was just like, oh yeah, like it's real. I'm finna go to the league. And I was I was geeked. I was geeked up because I literally was was not thinking about school at all. <laughs> like, but I was just like, I was having a lot of fun in school, man. I was just I was having too much fun in college. So I had to stay. I had to do what I had to do.
I got to ask you, because one of my, if I could go back in time and, you know, get it, have a genie wish, I would want to be a superstar SEC football player because there ain't nothing like being a superstar <laughs> SEC football player. Yeah, they, they definitely get, they like, like, like you said, they definitely get a lot of attention, man. And I'm not the type to, to look for attention, to ask for attention. I'm not, I'm not the center of anything. Like, I like to just pop out on you. You know what I mean? Like, because when you fall, you fall big. You know what I'm saying? And like, I'd rather crawl out of somewhere than just fall heavy. You know what I mean? Like, let me come up, you know, leave me in the dark. You know, let me fight my way out. Because that's what's really building character, you know, instead of just, you know, getting all the attention. Like, I hate when guys, you know, start, oh, yeah, I'm the, I'm the best corner in the game. I should do this. I should do that. Like, it's cool, you know, you, you know, you confident, you super confident, you got major confidence in yourself, but like, you don't know if you're the best corner in the game or the best linebacker or whatever, man. Like, just put your head down to work, you know, and like, that's what I tell all the young guys, all my young guys, Detroit or whatever, like, I just tell, I pack light, man, pack light, put your head down to work. Don't worry about the next man, don't worry about what he's doing, you got to get yourself together. What were the parties like in college? What What is it like when you're, when things are going well and... Man, you got to understand, we know how to party in Mississippi, man. We know how to have fun, especially in Southern Miss. Like, Southern Miss was, it was definitely real. I don't think nobody even wanted to go home. Like, people didn't even want to go home. And it, even if you did go home, like, it didn't stop. Like, the house party, oh, party at Sister's house, beer pong, all type of stuff, every all type of stuff going on, like, like all the time. Like, we just, we really... Really, really enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> Three reallys. I'm you know, you, like, I can't was, even imagine the fucking. We used to have we used to have the biggest block parties, like shutting the streets down. Like it used to be crazy. Get speakers, DJs outside in the parking lot. Police used to come because people used to park at like like the churches. It was a church across the street. People used to park at the church and stuff. Like the police, that was like, nah, y'all. Y'all gotta move, y'all gotta move y'all cars. And if they wouldn't, then they'll shut the party down. But like it used to be stupid. Like we used to, man, we used to have so much fun. Like I'm telling you, this was before all the social media stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't really crazy like that. Like back then, you really enjoyed yourself. Like I feel like now, like it's not really enjoyable. You know what I'm saying? But back then, like you really enjoyed yourself without being put out. Oh, look at such and such, you know what I'm saying? Like getting recorded and stuff like that. Like, nah, like we really enjoyed it yourself, like shit faced. You you in the you in the dead sleep, but ain't nobody recording you, putting you out on no no type of stream or outlet or whatever. But you wake up the next day, like, and you good. Like somebody gonna help you out or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, we just really enjoyed ourselves out there, man. And like I don't know, like some of my best moments out there was the parties, you know, even though I was playing ball, but the parties that we had, the parties that we threw, especially like for my birthday, my birthday was around spring ball. Like me and a couple of my teammates had like the same birthday and we would throw those parties. It used to be stupid. Like it used to be really crazy. Like no dangerous stuff, no fighting, no none, no none of that, just straight fun. And that's what I miss the most, man. Like just, just having fun, you know, like listening to music, getting you some drinks in, going nuts, man. And we did that a lot, you know, like a lot. I can't even imagine. <laughs> Old days with no social media. 
pretty fun, man. I miss them days. <laughs> I think we get, all can agree, and I'm not sure if you've heard this before, but the Cowboys are the real winners. They won the pandemic world record in attendance this season. <laughs> are you happy for Jerry and that and what that franchise has been able to accomplish after all these years? You know, finally winning the big one. <laughs> <laughs> They got to win something. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I had to do it. I had to ask the question, you know. Hey, man, what, Hey, any type of win is big, man. <laughs> do you think Mahomes has got a shot to catch Brady? Of course. Of course, man. He's Look, look at his career, the way he started his career. It's only right, you know, to give him a shot. You know, if you're not giving him a shot, then that's crazy. Because, like I said, he's been doing it since since he since he took over the starting position. He's been doing it, you know. And yeah, Tom is far out there, but still, like you got to give this man a shot, you know, because no one else is doing what he's doing. Who's all these young quarterbacks nowadays? Like they're they're not doing what Mahomes is doing, you know. They don't have the numbers, you know. They don't have the Super Bowl. Like you got to have that, you know. Mahomes got one, you know. You gotta you gotta add all that on because we know that if you don't, then you're not gonna get the recognition because my man Matt Stafford is not getting what he deserves. So you gotta have the numbers to back it up. Mahomes is he's definitely stacking it together. JC, so Brady has taken the Bucks franchise to its first Super Bowl in 18 years. Belichick's Patriots suffered its first losing season in 20 years. What outcome are you more surprised at? Really supr- more surprised at at the New England situation because. They've been winning for so long, you know. They was they was winning when they had sub. When they when Tom was out, you know, they still come in. You know, guys come in and, and take over that role. But like, it's kind of hard because Tom Brady is one person, you know, and and they got a lot of pieces. But New England is an organization. You know what I'm saying? Like that's the difference. You know, that's the difference in a quarterback position. You know, you can't win in this league without a quarterback. It's tough to win in this league without a quarterback. But you know, those guys. You know, they had, they had a lot of guys opt out, too. Now They had a lot of key players opt out over there, too. A couple of my guys got out of there. But that's that's the more surprising one to me, man, because it's an organization, you know, and Tom is one person. They got some guys in there, but that's every year, you know, teams get different guys. You still can't win without a quarterback. And I feel like the biggest, the biggest surprise is the organization, you know, having a losing season more than – Tom Brady going over there, taking those guys to the big one because Tom Brady is one of the greatest is the greatest quarterback to play the game. Just gotta give it. I gotta give it to him, man. He's definitely doing like they got a good defense too. You know, the defense pretty good over there too now. But you know, those guys they've been good. You know, their defense been good, but they wasn't winning like that with Winston. You just gotta like I said, you can't win this league without a quarterback. If you don't have a quarterback in this league, man, you just you're not gonna win. Period. Jamie, you've been absolutely amazing. We're going to get you out with what we call our hustle round. Our hustle round is presented by Boston Markets, all new Nashville hot sandwich. We're going to ask you a bunch of quick hitting questions. You've got three seconds or less to answer. My brain don't work like that. (laughs) We're going to work on it. We're going to fight. We're going to see what we got. Quick twitch. Quick twitch, baby. It's like you're coming off the line, hand in the dirt again. You ready to go? Let's go. Brady versus Peyton. Brady. Belichick versus Andy Reid. Belichick. Lawrence Taylor versus Aaron Donald. LT. Beast Mode versus Le'Veon Bell. Ooh. Le'Veon. Wow. Alabama versus Clemson. Alabama. Better City, Detroit or Cleveland? Detroit. 
Money versus fame. Money. Pizza versus hot dog. Pizza. Hall of Fame or Super Bowl win? Hall of Fame. You had one franchise to return to. Who is it? New England. Oh, yeah. That's my dude. I like you more now. Gronk versus Travis Kelsey. I, I got to go with Beast. I got to go with Beast. That's his nickname. That's Gronk. That's his that's Gronk nickname. I gave him that nickname when we was at New England. Kelsey, uh, Kelsey is a monster, though. He's, man, that dude tough. Corny as hell, but tough. I you know. Yeah, that dude tough. <laughs> man. That dude tough. But I got, I got to go. I got to go with Beast. I got to go with my man Beast. That's it, man. Thanks for playing the hustle round. You've been an absolute blast, Jamie. Thanks for being so candid with all of your answers. You are welcome back to join us here anytime, man. You've been awesome. Yes, sir, man. I appreciate y'all for having me on, man. All right, folks. That was Detroit Lions linebacker, Jamie Collins. Matt, if you could be a fly on the wall in the Patriots locker room for a day, which would you rather witness Tom Brady getting ripped or Reggie Wayne having to try out potentially a future hall of famer, Reggie Wayne trying to have to try out with the rookies or Jamie Collins getting laughed at and ripped by Bill Belichick for his ankle bracelet. Which one are you in on? It's gotta be the ankle bracelet. It really does. I mean, just, just even an ankle bracelet is unforgivable as it is. And just to watch uh, Belichick's reaction on that, it's got to be ankle bracelet. I think I just want to watch all of them. I want to watch Bill Belichick with his demeanor and sarcasm rip everybody, everyone from the greatest quarterback of all time to your first round or second round draft picks purchases. I would just love it. Like Bill Belichick is probably the funniest dude without trying to be funny on the planet because he probably never cracks a smile. He's got those sly little one-liners, and you're just like, man, this fucking guy, he's an assassin with his words. I would want to be in the room for after Belichick shipped him off to Cleveland, they won two more Super Bowls, and then Belichick's like, oops, sorry, and then brings him back for a season. What that meeting after was like, like, oh, dude, sorry. I was trying to get anybody but Cleveland, but, you know, I couldn't. You know, here are two honorary Super Bowl rings for what I did to you. Yeah, my, my bad, my bad, oh. Jamie. My bad. Come on back. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Great interview, though. I thought. Yeah, no, totally. And we got another one on Thursday. We have one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL, Chris Harris Jr. Guy made the All-Decade team. Was part of the no-fly zone Denver Broncos defense. Super Bowl champion. Love this interview. I think everyone's going to really love hearing about Chris Harris's takes on the NFL. The guy has a true underdog story. We explored it in great detail. That's going to be Thursday's show. And now he's playing for the Chargers. And he gave us a lot of insight into Justin Herbert. I thought it was great. Can't wait to share this one. Yeah, same. And just a little housekeeping here. You can subscribe to Endless Hustle wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to Bro Bible's YouTube channel to watch Endless Hustle and more shows from Bro Bible. You can also follow at Bro Bible for more content on Instagram, on Twitter. You can follow Endless Hustle on Twitter at Endless Double Underscore Hustle and on Instagram at Endless Hustle Pod. And you can follow me if you're feeling super desperate at Mr. Cohan, K-E-O-H-A-N. And on Twitter, I'm at Arthur Cade. And on Instagram, at It's Me, Arthur Cade. As mentioned, guys, we're back with a new episode on Thursday. And we'll see you guys then. Peace. Peace.